Hello, everyone, and welcome to another bonus episode of Director's Club. I am Jim Laskowski, and I hope you are ready for some additional conversation all about my favorite director, because, well, I just can't get enough. And perhaps you're as excited as I am to hear from an expert who has written an entire book all about PTA called The Cinema of Paul Thomas Anderson, American American Apocrypha. There we go. I can say that word, Apocrypha. Yes, I hope that's right. The author is none other than Ethan Warren, who has gone quite through an adventure throughout his life, having made his own film west of her, and also did a lot of traveling, but also... Boy, he's done a lot of writing, which you can find all over the internet. Bright wall, dark room, and elsewhere, I'm sure. I first became friends with him on Twitter once um, I knew he his, his book was coming out. And I was also lucky to receive a package of Criterion discs from him and an advanced copy of the book, which I read in a matter of days because I just found it so compelling. Uh, of course I would. It's about Paul Thomas Anderson. What are you, crazy? Of course I'm going to like it. Um, But also just the structure which we get into, I don't want to spoil what we talk about, but um, pick it up at an independent bookstore or, yes, Amazon, of course. That's an option as well, which will be linked in the show notes. But following our, you know, like 30, 35-minute discussion, you're going to hear a review that was exclusively only available on Patreon for a while, but what the heck. I wanted the original hosts to talk about, you know, PTA and mostly a positive light. And Patrick came on early last year. I think it was 2022. Gosh, what is time? Uh, Yeah, maybe February of 2022. He came on to share his thoughts on Licorice Pizza, which, again, not my favorite PTA film, but... Patrick had a lot of a lot to say and, and a lot of really smart, insightful, interesting things and feelings about Licorice Pizza. And it was a good discussion. I figured, hey, that's a great way to end this double header of PTA Love with the last episode, which you got to hear Nick and Steve. And now for this episode, you get to hear Ethan and then Patrick himself. So this is great. And soon enough, you're going to be hearing a lot from Bill Ackerman. He is going to present a wildly experimental series of episodes on a wildly experimental filmmaker called Jean-Luc Godard. Perhaps you've heard of him. And I believe that's coming around the first week of April, and I can't even tell you how long it's going to be and how many episodes it'll ultimately turn it into, but I can't wait to hear it. I've only seen about six guitar films, and I felt a little intimidated to even come on that episode. I knew Bill would bring his A-game like he always does, so hey, let him have a, a, an incredible run 
uh, I'm sure, with a lot of interesting guests that are going to have a lot of interesting things to say. I use the word interesting a lot, but <laughs> I, I think that's for good reason because, well, Godard, a little bit interesting, a little bit out there. Before I play Ethan's interview, though, I just want to say a few more things about Inherent Vice. And uh, I know you're probably going, oh, no, more. He's going to say more things. But, you know, it's my favorite PTA film. And when, when, I, when I talked with Nick, I didn't necessarily feel like challenging him too much on his opinion that, um, well, he feels it's PTA's weakest film. And I feel like it's, okay, it's not PTA's best film. You know, there will be blood, the master, definitely the best films he's probably ever made. Personally, my favorite is still Inherent Vice, and I don't think that's going to change in the same way that Mulholland Drive is my favorite David Lynch movie, and I don't think that's going to change. Uh, and when I have a guest on, you know, when I have guests on, like like Nick and Steve, I just want them to share their thoughts, have their say, not necessarily push back too much and be all like, wait a minute here. I don't like what you're saying. I, and that's not true. I always like what Nick has to say, even when I disagree. But I just don't want to make the show argumentative or combative or anything. And one can make the argument, too, that I'm not necessarily good with confrontation or um, you know, like articulating opinions that are different sometimes. But, you know, I'm trying to write that out more on my Substack. Uh, which is fiveyears.substack.com, the number five, which I'm very proud of so far and more to come with that. But really, I just, I respect Nick, even if we're disagreeing more often than not over the years. And that's certainly the case with Inherent Vice. But he did say like, uh, I'm trying to put this the right way, that, I don't know, Inherent Vice, the film, is mostly Pinchon's voice coming through. And I, I think he's right. But somehow, as I'm reading more Pinchon, I'm realizing that these two were made for each other. Brothers from other mothers? Kind of? I don't know. Their styles mesh really well. Because they take risks and, and, and chances and often come up with these really interesting, um, I don't know, dichotomies or, uh, yeah, like yin and yang or people that are from just very different upbringings or mentalities and they clash and you know confront one another or try to come to terms with who they are and sometimes they're friends and sometimes they're enemies and sometimes they're both things at the same time which really kind of highlights even more the relationship between um, Bigfoot and Doc you know I think it's not unlike the master or phantom thread or even licorice pizza. Although that's less, I don't know. There's, there's definitely some, there's a lot of tension in that, but um, I don't know. There's just something interesting about, and I think I even brought that up with Ethan. So I won't, you know, go too much into great detail, but really um, I, I just, I don't know. Pinchon's phrasing his kind of weird word salad and his ideas are just bonkers, but they speak to me. Somehow, like when I'm reading a phrase or a passage and it's a long-winded, full of run-on sentences, there's just something about Pinchon where I'm like, how did you come up with this? Like, what planet are you from? I mean, nobody writes like this. Nobody thinks like this. And I certainly have felt that way about other authors in the past. There's, you know, a slew of 
writers that I gravitate towards for a reason. They just, I just get what they're, where they're coming from, or at least they're speaking to me, or I just like how they approach storytelling. And both Pinchon and PTA really work wonderfully together. And so I kind of disagree to some extent with Nick because he's basically saying, no, PTA's voice isn't coming through at all in any capacity. It's all Pinchon. I think it's a synthesis. <laughs> I think they're sort of becoming one. And if Vineland becomes a thing and it's his next work, I have a feeling that's going to be affirmed. For, you know, I just think as I'm reading Pinchon, and certainly as I'm thinking more, you know, especially recently about Paul Thomas Anderson, I'm just kind of like, that works. And I don't understand when people say, no, that doesn't work. It's. <laughs> There's so many recurring elements of what's in Inherent Vice throughout his filmography. So, I don't know. I, I mean, one could certainly say that, oh, the humor doesn't work. Or, you know, oh, it, it, it veers tonally. Or there's just too many characters. Or the plot's very dense. But it all comes together. It all makes sense. On first viewing, I thought it was a mess. But then it changed. And I started to realize, oh, no, this is far from a mess. It's more like a ghost story. It's a, you know, a mystery and it's about a time we can never get back. You know, we can never get that time back on a macro level with the hippie movement essentially being taken over during the Nixon era and certainly what happened with Manson. But uh, like, you know, what what's happened on a personal level for Doc, he has a hard time shaking the regret he feels about Shasta and the fact that she's really not the person he has built up in his mind to be is haunting him in some way. And, you know, not to mention that really all of us can relate to, you know, having someone in our lives that impacted us so greatly that even if they're gone, like they're not present physically or we're not following them in any way on social media, they're never really gone, even if we've moved on or they've moved on from us. They're still here. They haunt dreams. They 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 still live inside of our DNA and our feelings. They stir up memories. Um, you know, and I th- I just like people are very responsive to the master for for those similar reasons, and I get that too. You know, I I sometimes feel haunted by the master, but inherent vice just feels like it's directly tapping into something inside of me. That is even hard to just say. I just feel it. Um, and to, to me, by the end of the movie, I'm, I'm thinking about the fact that, like, is really what we're witnessing is how money and the wrong kind of destructive drugs like heroin and opiates have taken over to the point where we can't actually be the people we want to be. We're just escaping constantly, and we need to because of the horrors of, that we have to live through in, in everyday life through capitalism, you know, through the student loan debt and rent and, you know, everything just being out of control and and scary, especially, you know, post, I guess you could say COVID. Uh, But I don't know. It's just something, it's a feeling I get more and more when I go back to Inherent Vice. Uh, And if you get that from other movies, certainly I, I... I hope you do. Like, I hope you get that sort of connection or that instant vibe where you're just like, this is it. This is for me. I, I feel this, you know, in my bones somehow. And that's surprisingly what's happened over time. 
and I think it's, you know, maybe I've joined the cult of Pinchon. I don't know. Like, I, I just, I just feel like this is it. I'm ecstatic to keep going back to that movie because it's, it does feel like it's a part of me. It's like going in through a photo album or something. I don't know. Um, but really all we can hope for is that there's someone waiting for us and that we can get back to them. You know, sometimes with the help of someone else willing to be selfless, which is what doc ultimately chooses to be in, um, in, in helping, uh, Koi get back to his wife and daughter. And I get, you know, really choked up thinking about that decision and that to me is what the movie is about. Like, cause there's hope, you know, despite the fact that we're still living in a really fractured world. Um, maybe there's some healing to be made through being selfless and thinking about other people and how we can make them happy in some way or better their lives. Maybe that'll help us. Maybe that will save our soul, but I don't know. That to me is what the movie is about. I just, I wish I'd articulated that more succinctly or rambly even because Pinchon's kind of rambly, but you know, when, when Nick and Steve are there, I'm not going to be like, Hey everybody, listen to me, you know, monologue for, you know, 10 minutes here. Like I am asking you to do right now. But, uh, anyway, I mean, I really do feel like when, when Bigfoot eats, um, Doc's pot towards the end, there's this juxtaposition the synthesis between the two of them in the same way that we see um in his next film phantom thread with alma and Cyril, they start talking in unison when the doctor is leaving and oddly enough that's exactly what happens with bigfoot and doc and for some it, it could be sad it could be scary it could be very funny depending on where you're at with the film and sometimes i find it all three I just, I think Doc is sad that Bigfoot is lost in the system um, by being, you know, who he is, a police officer stuck in a loveless marriage. And maybe he needed to eat that pot to lose control for just a while. <laughs> I don't know what's going to do to poor Bigfoot once he left Doc's apartment, but good Lord. Um, you know, and, and much like Freddy, Doc can't take this world straight, you know, and for a reason. There's trauma, there's regret there's fear there's paranoia there's a lot of damage that has been done you know and we can we can certainly blame reality for that but it's also the damage that exists within one's mind and i don't know there's just something about the way pta thinks about these things you know he he, he connects with sad desperate people and brings them fully to life and I always feel grateful whenever I sit down to watch anything he's done practically. But I, f I find Inherent Vice interesting to watch, you know, and, and it became my favorite PTA film during the Trump era. So I don't know what that says. I, it just something about the times and the lockdown and what we were dealing with. It just seemed to really tap into a deeper feeling that I, I again, can't put it all into words and I certainly am going on and on longer than I expected. But you know, if, if PTA's next film does turn out to be Vineland, you can count on me as being more enthused because uh, I just think there's a synthesis between Pinchon and PTA 
uh, that is successful, where even if people don't think so, I truly do think they mesh beautifully. They just, I don't know, they complement each other. They're working together in this symphonic harmony that uh, brings me joy, as you've heard me say time and time again now at this point. And oddly enough, much like the master, it was a ba- it was barely in my top ten, if not at all, on first viewing. Like first viewing, I was like, I don't get it. I don't. I, I'm I'm lost. I'm not feeling anything. And then lo and behold, Inherent Vice would go on to not only be my favorite PTA movie, but in my top five of all time, which is crazy. It's such a crazy, weird choice, but I love it. Um. And you know who else loves Paul Thomas Anderson? Ethan Warren. That's who I'm talking about next. He put all of that love in a book that you should all read. And right after that, you're going to hear a year-old conversation between me and Patrick as he responds strongly to a PTA film like I have for Inherent Vice. He did with Licorice Pizza. So I wanted to let him also uh, have a say here even if the uh, conversation's dated, who knows, there might be dated references or whatever. But seriously, give that a listen and uh, stick around for Ethan here in a minute. Um, I'm really excited for you to hear that. Uh, just bear with me for this continuation of nerding out over um, Paul Thomas Anderson, of course. And uh, thank you for listening, and thank you to Bill Ackerman for all his supporting um, upcoming hard work that you're about to experience. And I'll see you later in April when guest Mariah Gates returns. Can't wait for that. For now, let's do this. On to my talk with author, filmmaker, writer, Ethan Warren, about his book on the cinema of Paul Thomas Anderson. So anyone that listens to this show, they all know I'm passionate about a few things in life. Coffee, cats, hats, music, and of course, movies. Hence why I do this podcast in the first place. But if you just listened to the last official episode with Nick and Steve, you'll know that one of the reasons why I got hooked into movies in the first place was seeing Boogie Nights back in 1997. And it was around maybe like a third rewatch of Punch Drunk Love that I just ultimately said, you know what? Paul Thomas Anderson is my favorite filmmaker. And the way some people become obsessed with, you know, certain musicians or writers or directors, I guess you could say that I became quite obsessed with PTA. Probably because you can go back to his work time and time again to find something new and interesting. And it it, it goes beyond just saying like, oh, yes, there are layers and there are deep, profound emotions that he taps into that are sometimes hard to put into words. But today's guest is a very accomplished writer who put a lot of his passion for PTA into words. And the moment I heard about it, I knew I would not only be excited to read his labor of love, but to have him guest on the show right after doing PTA part two. So it's a pleasure to have on the show a multi-talented author of the new book, something I'd consider to be Precious Cargo. Uh, the cinema of Paul Thomas Anderson, 
American Apocrypha. Welcome, Mr. Ethan Warren. Well, thank you so much for having me. That's such a lovely introduction. Oh, I thank you. But I should really just say thank you for writing this book. Oh, well, you're so welcome. I did it all for you. <laughs> oh, really? Mission accomplished. Yeah. Wow. Because I was just going to ask, what was the impetus outside of, obviously, you are a fan of the subject matter that you wrote about. But I, fir- I first heard you on um, Travis Wood's Increment Vice, because like I've mentioned, I'm obsessed, especially with Inherent Vice. Excellent uh, show, yeah. Yeah, but um, yeah, that was such a good episode, too. There was so much to think about and a lot of... You said a lot of quote-worthy things that I should just written write down the way some people just write down pinching uh, phrases. <laughs> I'm sure. sure, but but let's just yeah, let's just get like a general like where were you when you said I think I want to write a book about Paul Thomas Anderson? What was going on in your life and what made you want to sit down and actually do it? Well, it I, I've been working on the idea of a, of a Paul Thomas Anderson book in some form since right around when Phantom Thread came out. And that was just a point where it felt like it, it all, it's, it's so interesting to look back at Phantom Thread in the wake of licorice pizza, because what Phantom Thread felt to me at that time was that, that he had taken a decisive step in like a bold new direction, you know, telling international stories for the first time. And that, that sort of the, the sky was the limit for where he would go next, where he went next, of course, was right back to some, relatively safe home territory. Um, but so, you know, a large part of, of what kicked me off um, on this journey of wanting to, to think so deeply about him was this idea that like he had had such a remarkable progression. Um, it's, it's the thing that drew me to writing about him is, is also the thing that made me uh, structure the book a little bit unusually because the book is not structured chronologically. I, I go chapter by chapter looking at different themes in Anderson's work because I didn't want to just write a chronological survey of this guy's career because it is almost too interesting, for yeah. lack of a better term, to go movie by movie. It's been done so many times because he has this relatively concise filmography each of the movies is so unique, yet each one is so distinctly his. It He has progressed in such a sort of easy-to-follow way to a certain extent that you're, you're so tempted to just talk about it chronologically. And so that was what I wanted to do. Um, but then I also had this urge to, to sort of push back on that a little bit, um, that it was maybe a little bit too easy or too convenient um you know it's it's adam Naiman uh also wrote a fabulous book on yes masterworks mm-hmm. masterworks yeah it came out a year or two ago um and he also did not look at it chronologically and he uses this term i like um something about uh how it, if you if you talk about his career chronologically it makes it look like a retrospective autorist pilgrim's progress <laughs> yeah it's a wonderful term Mm-hmm. Um, and so it just, it just seems a little more exciting to, to break up all the puzzle pieces, mix them all together and shake it up and see what happens. 
And so I had all these thoughts kind of bubbling around in my head for a while without anything to do with them. And then I linked up with the good people at uh, Columbia University Press and Wallflower Books, an imprint of Columbia University Press that is devoted to uh, film and media studies. Um, and they have this series, Director's Cuts, the cinema of blank director. Uh, and I said, well, I have this idea for a Paul Thomas Anderson book. Would you be interested in that? And they said, yes, we would very much. So thank you very much. And so I sent them this proposal and they were like, oh, well, we usually just go movie by movie. And I had this moment of like, ooh, well, that sure would be easier. So maybe I should do that. Um, but then they they pivoted and said, but we love this, you know, you know, non-chronological approach. So go with that. So they almost they almost saved me a lot of trouble by just straightening things out and falling in with the series uh, typical order. But they they pushed me to keep the non-chronological approach, and I'm glad they did, ultimately, even though it was very hard to write. Oh, I imagine. But I mean, just, yeah, like you said, that structure, that style of, you know, sort of, sort of going through a director's filmography, there's plenty of examples of that out there. Why not try and change it up? And I certainly appreciated the idea of looking at his overall filmography as these like three separate phases of sorts, I guess you could say, like with how you labeled them thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. Right, yeah, I, that's, that's kind of how I lay it out in the, in the introduction, which is right. the chronological overview, or the first chapter, I guess, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because I do think a lot of his movies are about synthesis in terms of just like two opposing forces sort of learning to merge in some way or accept each other or look in the mirror and see reflections of one another, you know, like that is a lot of truth. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the, a lot of the movies I, you know, talked about for the, for the la his last four films for the last podcast, I just noticed that there's always these two shots of just the two main characters in some form dealing with each other in kind of not necessarily always a confrontational way, but certainly um, reckoning with their differences, but also learning to accept those differences. So yeah, I I really like that because I just focused mainly on the latter part of his career recently, just kind of going through the book and going, yeah, I see some parallels with with just that idea going on. Um, yeah, I think he's a director who's interested in the idea of uh, of dyads of. Two yes. characters who are kind of two sides of the same coin. So you and and um, often, if you look at his movies, there's there's a a battle of wills between two sort of ideologically opposed uh, characters at the center. Like you have Doc Sportello and Bigfoot Bjornsson. You have Barry Egan and Mattress Man. Um, obviously, Daniel Plainview and Eli Sunday. Uh, you know the list goes on and on. Oh yeah. Um, and even if you want to look at something like phantom thread there's the uh the equivalent pairing of um oh alma and cyril magnolia is all made up of of sort of pairings of characters um yeah it's it's i i never really thought of it as as two opposing forces working towards a synthesis but i think you're right yeah or even alma and um reynolds mother at one point too Mm, when she enough. appears, yeah. When yeah. she appears, that's kind of, yeah. That that moment gets to me. Like that whole sequence kind of gives me uh, goosebumps. As do many moments throughout his entire, uh, yeah, career. But how did you decide on 
just the, the the chapters that you want, like the the specific subjects, like faith and belief and gender. Um, certain certainly, like how he you know recontextualizes history. I mean, it's, that must be hard to pin down because his his films are often so dense with ideas and just. You know, I, I can't imagine like just kind of like sitting down and saying, "Okay, these are the headlines," or "This is the headings that I want to make sure I sit down and write about." Um, so, how was that process like? How did you know specifically what you wanted to write about per chapter? Yeah, that's an interesting question because I don't really remember. I guess anymore. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to remember which which concepts came first. So, what I have is ten chapters, and the uh, sort of even numbered chapters are big themes in his work that I tackled. And then the odd number chapters are more sort of side quests, I guess. Um, <laughs> little, little offshoots that aren't so much thematic as just sort of broader context for his work. So um, yeah, what, what it, it was just sort of a matter of, he has a, as I mentioned, I think earlier, a conveniently short filmography. So you can kind of sure. hold these movies in your hands and you just sort of play around with them a little bit and, and start to think about, well, what bubbles to the surface? Um, faith and belief certainly bubbles to the surface in a lot of these movies. Mm-hmm. And then once you start thinking about it, you realize that most of these things actually show up in every movie, whether, um, you know, overtly or more covertly. And so it's, it becomes very rich because you're, you're pulling at, you know, if you, if you start looking at what is, what is faith and belief in heart eight, well, it's there. Um, but you have to kind of squint at it and look at it sideways. And that, you know, is a benefit to this approach because it, it allows you to, you know, if, if you're writing a heart eight chapter, you would never try to approach the idea of faith and belief in it. Um, I would imagine. <laughs> Yeah, um, no, definitely. Boy, yeah, I, I can't remember which of these came first. I wanted to do a music videos chapter very badly, uh, very early on. Oh, yeah, because he's so good at making those videos, too. He's incredible, but there has not really been that much sustained analysis of his mm-hmm. work as music video director. Um, so that one came early. Uh, the idea of his relationship with his influences came up really early because that, I mean, there's so much to say. Yeah. And I'm not seeing any of it right now. <laughs> <laughs> no need, because people have to read the book to find out more information. Well, sure. And Paul Thomas Anderson's relationship to his influences is kind of PTA 101. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, he, he, he certainly put those out there into the world and, you know, to the point where that um, was it was it for a screening of Inherent Vice that was at the Film Society at the Lincoln Center, was it where he basically like showcased some of his actual, some of his influences for inherent vice. Um, yeah. I don't remember where that happened. Was, was it maybe part of the New York film festival? Yeah, maybe it was. Yeah. 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 I, I just yeah, remember showed, getting like showed North so by Northwest. He showed, uh, were, were you there for these things? Oh no, no, I actually wasn't, right. but I just remember seeing the video or even hearing a podcast and, going oh man he showed repo man and jackie brown and north by northwest i was just like oh man and yeah, i think like he, zucker abrams zucker yes, stuff I think. yes yes and, yes, and yes. the neil, neil young movie journey through the past it's a right. weird lineup weird weird set of influences <laughs> yeah indeed but i can see how they all 
sort of found their way into Inherent Vice, which is, interestingly, I mean, I guess it, it seems to be the most divisive, would you say? I mean, because I know people who mm. just don't get it or don't like it or feel like it's really alienating and confusing, and I'm, I feel quite the opposite. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that, it, it helps to have multiple rewatches, which... I'd just be curious to know how much you will rewatch these movies to write about them too. <laughs> well, boy, I mean, it's, there was a time when Magnolia would have been pretty handily his most uh, controversial movie or his most divisive one. Oh yeah. Um, but yeah, you're right. Uh, Inherent Vice probably has it beat um, just because boy, they're, they're two very different types of, of <laughs> divisive. Um, the thing with Inherent Vice is it's just, you have to surrender to it a little bit. And I think it's hard not to want to grapple with it on first watch to sort of take on the plot and make some sense of what you're seeing when, you know, really it makes a lot more sense to just relax and enjoy it as a series of vignettes and moments and images and vibes. Um, But that is not what a lot of people are looking for out of a movie and particularly not one that, is ostensibly working in the mystery noir realm. Um, boy, yeah, most divisive movie, I guess. Um, what was the second part of this question? Well, I mean, I was just curious too. Like, you know, some somebody like Travis Woods, I can't imagine how many times he <laughs> went back oh, to inherit advice yeah. for his podcast alone, and ha- you know, like deconstructing scene by scene. I just wonder what your process was like in, you know, dissecting you know, each movie in a way, did you have like that crazy cork board with a lot of string and just like trying to piece all these movies together on your own? Like, you know, did you have a ton of Google docs open <laughs> with your own notes after rewatching them over and over again? I would imagine. Uh, I had a fabulous app called Scrivener open. Oh, okay. Scrivener is how I organize my thoughts. It's, it's a wonderful notes organization app. Highly recommended. And it can sync across your computer and your phone so you can go back and forth on the same document. And it's very nice. Um, what I did was, um, in a certain point, you can just uh, stop rewatching them whole cloth and go back and just watch chunks. Um, but what my favorite thing to do is uh, is read the scripts alongside the screen, the, the, the movies. That is where I do the most sort of fertile harvesting of ideas. Um, And fortunately, every PTA script, with the exception of Licorice Pizza, is out there and available, mostly for free as PDFs online, although a couple I had to order the For Your Consideration published screenplays um, they sent to awards voters on eBay. Uh, Phantom Thread and The Master are not, I don't think, available in PDF online. Maybe I'm wrong. but that I find is a really important element of um, of the research process is that that allows me to get even deeper into sort of seeing in a, in a given scene if he's describing you know how the characters are walking that tells you so much about what the movie and what what the scene is about. Um, there's a moment in There Will Be Blood where you, he talks about the earth crunching under Daniel's feet, and that to me is so telling about so many different aspects of what that scene is about as I write about in the book. 
And you don't get that necessarily on the screen with the intentionality of the director's eye in a given sequ- sequence is. Wow. Yeah, that's now that's that makes me want to do that exact same thing now. <laughs> and they haven't published Licorice Pizza. It's try it, it drove me completely crazy because I really wanted to do that with this last movie. Oh yeah. I mean that that came out and you probably were like, oh no, I gotta I gotta write even more now. <laughs> oh my god. Well I, I had written the entire book. And oh, then wow. my editors said, Well, he's got this new movie coming out. Do you want to hold and write about the movie? And I said yes, and it was uh, you know it really filled me with dread because that's a moment where the non-chronological approach really bit me in the behind because if if I had just been writing chapter by chapter movie by movie I could have just written a licorice pizza chapter and plopped it onto the end exactly yeah which another writer uh, named Jason Spurb wrote his own book on Anderson he did the chronological approach and then tacked a quick chapter on the master onto the end and if there is a movie that you do not want to have to do a quick and dirty <laughs> read of and just hack a chapter on, it's The Master. Yeah, no kidding. Um, but what I had to do instead was do basically a page one rewrite with Licorice Pizza. Because um, I was rolling it in on every chapter. But it was really great because it ended up really tying the whole book together. That movie you know, made all of my points for me. Things that I was only sort of gesturing at were all of a sudden... You know, clear as day text for me, which I really appreciated. Yeah, no, for sure. And I remember when I saw Licorice Pizza, I'm like, yeah, this is almost like a Paul Thomas Anderson's greatest hits kind of record. Uh, and I like that. Yeah, I also just thought of like, I like what you said about um, Inherent Vice kind of being like the white album. <laughs> mm, yeah, <laughs> that yeah. was a real, yeah, that was really interesting. And in, in the, uh, um, kind of selfless selfishness in a way. Like, I just love the the epiphany that Doc has, and I say that in the last episode. But just you know that moment of him realizing what's going to keep him up at night. It actually moves me more than most things in a movie. Yep. And some people Let's find it just like kid blues. Yeah, you got it. And I think it is like probably. My favorite chapter, even though I'm probably much like Paul Thomas Anderson's movie, is going to go back and reread and <laughs> get out my highlighter and all that fun stuff. Treat it like a class, you know? Oh, um, sure. Yeah, I'd say that's, that's kind of always been my approach to, you know, things is I like structure and I've always liked when a professor gives me a syllabi and is like, hey, do this and do that. And so now I've sort of just like taken that into my everyday life. <laughs> Where it's just like I pick up a book and I'm like, okay, I'm going to treat it like, you know, I have to take a test on it or something in a way. But but it's also for pleasure, of course. But I really do like the uh, the chapter on alienation quite a bit. Because even when I first saw Punch Drunk Love, I remember just seeing that opening shot and going, look at all that open space. And him just sitting there in that lonely desk in that corner of the frame and just how expansive that is. And just realizing that he just basically summed up this character right at the very beginning (laughs) with that shot. And it just goes to show how alienated he is, you know, to some extent from himself and certainly his family and just what that shot alone has to say about that character is really really something remarkable. So I started just picking up on that. I mean, that's 
kind of around the time. I mean, I certainly loved Magnolia and uh, and Boogie Nights, but I feel like Punch Drunk Love is when I started to get like deep into analyzing movies more. Like, what does this mean, and what does that mean, and could uh, Lana be an alien? <laughs> <laughs> You're one of those. Yeah. Well, no, it's it's Lena, right? Is it Lena? Or it, Lana? it is Lena. Yeah. Yeah, Lena. Right. Yeah. I don't know if I'd go that far. I just I read that theory once, and of course I had to rewatch it reading that theory to see. I mean, it becomes like a room two thirty seven. It does well, and I I've got and I've got my own room two thirty seven approach to that yes. movie. So it's it's you know. Well, I'd like to hear hear it. Yeah. Oh well, my goodness! I think <laughs> that movie is very dense with references to two thousand one: A Space Odyssey and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Oh wow. Oh, I gosh. think it is. You're going to make is, me watch it again, like tonight. I think it is barely <laughs> even subtext. Um, gosh, what are the what are the references? Um, well, I think that the. I'm trying to think. Do I go from the the most personal to me to the most smoking gun, or do I start with the smoking gun? We'll start with the smoking gun. Um, no, we'll start with the most personal to me. I think that the uh, the harmonium functions a lot like the. Uh, what do you call it? The the monolith in 2001 A Space Odyssey. Hmm. It is deposited mysteriously by unknown forces and triggers an evolutionary leap in the protagonist who uh, goes from a more ape-like state to a more uh, <laughs> evolved state. Um, I am not the only person who has made this comparison. Um, what else? Oh, the uh, in the screenplay, stuff you only get from reading the screenplay, uh, for no good reason, uh, every time Barry opens the doors to his uh, warehouse, uh, they're written. It, it, they're described as the pod bay doors. That's not what that's called. What? Yeah. That's a term from 2001 A Space Odyssey. And certainly there's like this blinding light that comes in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Barry opens the pod bay doors. Uh, when he is, when he first has the harmonium, he plays four little Four little notes, a little four-note sequence, I believe. Or, you know, is it more notes? Might be five. Uh, da, 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 five da, the five-note sequence, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's the five notes from Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Uh, a little bit off-key, but he's doing it. Go back and check. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. It's pretty close. And then uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character is named Dean Trumbull which is the same as Douglas Trumbull, the great special effects artist, D. Trumbull, who did um, 2001 and Close Encounters. Oh, my gosh. And, and so I think I... that all... Go ahead. Hear what? <laughs> no, I was just going to say here I am thinking, like, you know, initially when I first saw it, I'm like, oh, this is just the sweetest, loveliest, craziest love story there ever was. <laughs> There's just so much more to it, as you're pointing out. Well, I think it just all it all points towards the idea of alienation. Those are, yeah. you know, using little sci-fi details, little sci-fi references, I think, just sort of nudges you in the direction of thinking this is a soul that is alienated and reaching out, trying to make some kind of contact with some other being out there in the cosmos. Mm-hmm. Again, there's a little synthesis when you look at the... Uh blue and pink motifs going on in that the blending mm-hmm. of the yeah the sure. uh, paint or the uh, artistry from that particular artist 
whose name I can't recall, but I'm sure you, you know. It's Jeremy Blake. Blake. Yes, Jeremy Blake. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, gosh. And that score, I mean, I, I, we're just, I'm basically getting into nerding out over his movies again because that just inevitably happens. <laughs> but I just, not kinda, to. yeah, I just kind of went, like, how does this, this doesn't, it does, it does feel otherworldly. Um, and there's certainly a lot of lens flares and things going on mm-hmm. in that movie. Oh, the lens flares. Those are, that's, that's a motif from Close Encounters of the Third Kind, too. Indeed. Yeah. But also it reminds me of, of, uh, orbs, the idea of, of sort of ghostly presences. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You know, I think, uh, certainly, you know, jumping even to Inherent Vice and Phantom Thread, there, there are hints of ghosts in those movies for sure. I mean, literally at one point in Phantom Thread, but, um, yes, just the idea of being haunted by something is probably, uh, a recurring theme throughout a lot of his work and which movie of, yeah, let's just, you know, kind of nerd out a little bit more, but which movie of, I mean, like the most out of all of his films, you know, which speaks to you, you know, which, um, you know, is there a theme we should even consider further that you found the most fascinating to explore? Uh, so those can kind of go hand in hand, I guess. <laughs> well, the movie of his that means the most to me is Punch Drunk Love. Great. It's, that's the one that I just, it just is the gift that never stops giving for me. I agree. And it has never lost any of its impact. Although, um, I feel like I always end up telling the story. It's, it's in the acknowledgements. It's how I open the book. Um, that movie, I had a violently negative reaction to it the first time I saw it. Mm. Um, I have never been angrier at a movie except maybe Frank Darabont's The Mist. <laughs> well, I can understand the, that towards the ending of show for sure. Yeah, yeah, two very different kinds of anger. Um, but I walked out of Punch Drunk Love just feeling like affronted by this artsy fartsy movie that <laughs> um, seemed to be sort of mocking my attempts at comprehension. That was how I felt about it, um, and. That was just, I was 16 years old. It's just classic sort of um, intellectual inferiority complex. Uh, but I have come back to it again and again ever since then. And, and it, it still has the sort of alienating effect on me. But now I so, so am, am tuned into what he's doing that I can really enjoy and love it. Yeah, it's like you're... You're finding a harmony with between you and the movie, one could say. You know, it's like, and I feel like he does that a lot. Where, where you know, especially when I saw The Master, the first time I saw it, like my head was spinning and I wasn't sure what I'd just seen. And mm-hmm. oh yeah, and as I said on the last episode, I too, I just, I still don't know what I should feel. And that's the thing is, like, I don't think this is a bad thing either. I'm not sure what to feel in that moment where Lancaster is singing to Freddie towards the end about the slow mm-hmm. boat to China. Like, I don't get the emotional impact that I do in something like Magnolia when, you know, Tom Cruise is breaking down and crying um, or, you know, like, and, and that's obviously more melodramatic, but I, I, in a good way, but I just, I'm, I still question what, and I love movies that do that. 
you know, that's probably why he is my favorite director. I love movies that make me go, well, I'm probably going to watch that again and maybe even have it a different feeling, you know? Oh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, there's there's so much to analyze, and you've done it so well in this book. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Yeah, I, and I I imagine you're, you know, taking, taking a, a little rest, but also promoting it and... Uh, do you see yourself writing another book down the road and what would it be on? I'm just curious. I actually have my next book in process right now. Um, I'm, I'm back with Columbia and Wallflower for a book on Bob Dylan as a cinematic figure. Wow. That's going to be fascinating. <laughs> oh mm, boy. I hope yeah. so. No, I think, I think it, I certainly think it would be. And uh, yeah, that's, that's, you know, certainly when I saw Todd Haynes is I'm not there. He, he another one of my favorite directors. It's just like how oh, do you tackle same. how do you tackle this career? And look what he did. <laughs> you know. Again, a lot of vignettes, right? Yeah. You know, yep. and, and 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 you know, different people portraying him in very interesting ways in a way that I think even Bob Dylan approved of, but oh, oh yeah, he did. Yeah. It is, it is the only official biopic to date, although we just learned that we are now in pre-production on the Timothy Chalamet uh, Bob Dylan <laughs> biopic, which mm-hmm. is going to, just like Licorice Pizza ruined my life a couple of years ago, this, this <laughs> damn Timmy Chalamet biopic is going to ruin my life again because it's going to come out just as I'm finishing. I'm going to uh, stop and write a whole bunch more again. Of course. Of course. Yeah. Well, um, I wonder... Will PTA get a get a copy of this book? And I, I think he'd be thrilled to know it exists. And certainly if he read it, I think he would give it the thumbs up. Oh well, I, I should hope so. Yeah. Um it is it is a loving yet certainly critical um approach to his mm-hmm. work. Although, you know, my, my first proposal was criticized for being too fan servicey, so I had to I had to goose up a little bit of uh some some criticism in there. I hope he wouldn't take it too personally. Yeah. Well, I hope you get to meet him one day and, you know. Oh, me too. Boy, that would be something. I never I never tried. It didn't feel beneficial to this project, but boy, yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, and of course, we're all just, the rumors are already spreading. It's kind of funny that it's happening at the same time as the new Tarantino movie. Like, everybody's like, you know, speculating, what's it going to be? What's it going to be? And that's exactly what happens with Paul Thomas Anderson when we get like a little inkling of, you know, who's going to be cast in this movie. And is it another pinch on adaptation? What is it going to be? You know, we get all excited and yeah, yeah we, it's like a fever starts spreading across film Twitter. <laughs> uh, so we'll see what it is. And yeah, yeah, I'm just glad I'm going to get to just enjoy this one again. It's it's you right? know, I'm not going to it's not going to be work. Exactly. <laughs> well, you did a great job with this as I as I expected because you know, I've read some of your work in the past. I really like what you wrote about Under the Silver Lake, which is very inherent that's, vice. That's a special piece, yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. We could have we could do a whole you know, an hour on that movie if not more. But um no, thank you so much for your time. And, and I also can't thank you enough for the uh, Criterion package. Oh my God! Way. Yes, you're one of the one of the beneficiaries of me uh, downgrading my physical media collection. <laughs> yeah, well, I understand that because I don't I don't know if I want to be a pack rat in the way some people are, like just collecting every little thing and having a hard copy of it. But no, I'm 
Criterion is definitely something I'll go out of my way for, for sure. Um, and thank you again for that. And thank you again for this book and your terrific analysis on my favorite director. I'm, I'm sure it'll be cited and read for years to come. Oh, I hope so. Thank you. Yeah, here's to more success in the future for you, and uh, let's keep in touch. And even when that Bob Dylan book comes out, we can talk about that too. That sounds good. Let's do it. Awesome, Ethan. Thank you again for your time. Thank you for yours. We'll be in touch later. Okay. If you could read my mind, love, what a tale my thoughts could tell. Just like an old time movie about a ghost from a wishing well. In a castle dark Or a fortress strong With chains upon my feet You know that ghost is me And I will never be set free As long as I'm a ghost You can't see I wanted to get my dear friend Patrick's take On what surprisingly turned into I wouldn't say like a controversial film per se, but certainly a lot of pieces have been written about it. A lot of uh, back and forth on Twitter. It's divisive. Uh, yeah. Yeah. More or less. I think so. I think so. Uh, so I'm just going to kick it off by simply asking the question. I, I've been waiting with bated breath and anticipation. Patrick, what did you think of the new film by Paul Thomas Anderson called Licorice Pizza? I'm sure so many people would have wanted you to do this podcast with someone who is a a fellow sort of enthusiast for Paul Thomas Anderson instead of (laughs) you inviting on the Paul Thomas Anderson truther. (laughs) 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 You're always like, those Paul Thomas Anderson bros, I'm sick of them. (laughs) They are. Well, you have to understand, if you sit in a movie theater and you watch The Phantom Thread, a movie that has zero funny things in it, and you hear people just crack up every time anyone swears, you're going to think, hey, maybe this guy has a cult that I don't want to be associated with. Um, But uh, I do want to start off before I say this is is just saying, like, for me, like, I'm not really interested anymore in the sort of culture war of film the way I used to be. So, like, the way I used to be, like, very anti-angry anti-Paul Thomas Anderson is because I really thought like, no, I want to fight over this medium and I want people to support, you know, works that are more complete and not, you know, as sloppy as his stuff is. And I want people to see the difference between a great director and a great screenwriter. And there was all these things that were important to me. And that's why I would be so loud about Paul Thomas Anderson. (laughs) And then these days I'm like, well, no, the medium's dead. I don't give a fuck. Like, you know, people can like, people can like what they like. I literally have no invested interest in any other human being liking the things I like other than like, I watch stuff with my partner and it's better if they like the thing we're watching than if they don't. But other than that, I don't care. So I'm not trying to convince anybody of my opinion here. And then the other thing is I realize that for me, movies are going to the theater. Like that's just, I mean, I love watching movies at home. There's plenty of amazing theater, you know, uh, film experiences I've had at home. Recently I watched Suey Hark's We're Going to Eat You, which is like just an absolutely astounding Hong Kong, like horror comedy, like almost in the vein of Peter Jackson, if Peter Jackson movies had Kung Fu. And like, and I still have that capability at home to see something and just be totally blown away and pulled over. But in general, I only really feel like vividly connected to the medium in a movie theater. And after Omicron spiked uh, at some point in late December, I stopped going to the movie theater because it just didn't feel safe anymore. And um, I thought I wasn't going to get a chance to see Licorice Pizza because that was right when Licorice Pizza was playing at the music box. And I'm like, all right, this movie's not going to stick around forever. 
um, but it stuck around forever. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and, that's holding on, holding on strong over there. And there was just a series of numbers where it's like, okay, the numbers are down here, and I was able to like catch <clears throat> a Friday show before that started before 5 p.m., which meant that most people would still be at work, and it had been playing for three months, which means that no one, you know, the people who are going to see it are going to see it because so the theater won't be crowded, and all those things lined up, and I was finally able to go to the music box and see licorice pizza and again first theatrical experience in like a month and a half or whatever but i loved it i absolutely love this movie um this is the most controversial thing i'm going to say here and again this is me speaking as the person who for paul thomas if i made this statement if the average like sort of cinephile i feel made this statement what they would be saying is licorice pizza is one of the greatest movies ever made but when i make this statement you have to understand paul thomas anderson has made uh, Inherent Vice, which I would give four stars. Punch Drunk Love, which I would like give four stars. If you're going to be as coarse to like sort of reduce everything to star ratings, which is stupid, but like it's just good shorthand. Like, um, and then a lot of his other movies where I'm like, there's a lot of stuff that's cool here. I don't really care about most of it. Like, you know, there's a lot of cool stuff in The Master. There's a lot of cool stuff in Boogie Nights and Magnolia and. Uh, uh, Phantom Thread, I don't like it all, and Heart Aid, I don't like it all. And There Will Be Blood, there's a lot of cool stuff, but generally it doesn't work to me. So when I say that I think Licorice Pizza is my favorite Paul Thomas Anderson movie, that's that's the context, which is this is the movie that feels the most complete to me. This is the movie that has the most interesting characters. This is the movie where every single scene I loved, um, and this is the movie that felt very complete sort of thematically and uh, a little less sloppy um, and sort of uh, frustratingly enigmatic the way that I find a lot of his work. So I do think, like for me, Licorice Pizza is the best Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Wow. Well, that's what's funny, too, is that um, I think a lot of people are still surprised when I tell them that Inherent Vice is my favorite Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Which is my second one, favorite, yeah. it's Because it's the one that people don't seem to connect with, and find way too shaggy and episodic and it doesn't all come together in a satisfying way for a lot of people. And, uh, I mean, maybe it's because I've rewatched it a lot and a couple of times I was high, but, um, <laughs> also I listened to a podcast that has, it's 45 episodes long called increment vice. I've talked about this before, uh, <clears throat> where they sort of dissect it scene by scene with different guests and their interpretation. And they all bring something new to the conversation. So over time, I, I just became enamored with that film to where it's actually in my top 10 favorite films. And I, I, I gotta say, I, I think you and Bill do the right thing by not watching trailers. I know I sent you a link to the uh, new Peter Strickland trailer. Don't mm -hmm. watch it. You don't have to watch it. I'm not going to. I couldn't miss the licorice pizza trailer because I use YouTube and I've seen nothing but licorice pizza trailers for like the past <laughs> two months. But, but yeah, I don't seek out trailers. Yeah. I mean, and the trailer is really great and it does capture the spirit of the film and I, I don't know why, but I actually got a lot more euphoria from the trailer than I did from the entire film. I think what I said initially when we talked about it for the year end episode, because it was number 10 on my list, but it's low for a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Um, <clears throat> you know, I, I'm not asking for frogs to fall out of the sky in, uh, in every PTA movie to where there's a sense of surprise of like, holy shit. I was not expecting this moment or that moment. And I usually get that from Paul Thomas Anderson mo movies, even Phantom Thread when she makes the omelet. I'm like, that's an amazing moment for me. Um, I will say that 
uh, from about the moment that Let Me Roll It starts playing, that is where I'm feeling the 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 dopamine rush in my brain that I get from watching his work. Uh, oh, great scene. Yeah. That scene, and then John Peters shows up, uh, Bradley, as Bradley Cooper, and then like everything from f- from his episode up until where he throws a trash can into a window uh, is definitely the highlight for me. Also, the luminous Harriet Sansom Harris as Mary Grady, the talent agent. That scene destroyed me the first time I saw it. I, I'm not I'm not the type to laugh out loud kind of hysterically the way you do, <laughs> but that did it for me. That scene. Uh, she's amazing, but I just, uh, yeah, it was, and this is like, it's a perfect r- summation of, of, of inherent vice to call it kind of a, an episodic shaggy little story about two people having kind of a connection that doesn't really fully connect at all times. And I certainly love parts of this movie and I certainly adore it. I've watched it only twice. And as I've told a lot of people, I bet maybe again, similar to inherent vice, once I watch it, you know, a couple more times, maybe I will get into that same category of loving it. Uh, but for right now, it's like, hmm, I don't know why I didn't love it as much. <laughs> That's yeah. kind of how, how I felt after it was over. But like uh, I said, there are moments I love. I mean, I think he's only really made two movies that aren't shaggy, episodic stories. I think it's only really Punch Drunk Love and Heart Eight that you could call like sort of lean, you know, uh, plot driven movies. Um uh, I I would not think of I really think of uh, I guess you could sort of make an argument for Phantom Thread, but that feels very sort of shaggy and episodic to me. Um, so I, that's just sort of his thing to me. Yeah, um, I guess you're right. Yeah, for me, it's it's um, one. I just think I don't think Paul Thomas Anderson is deep. Like I think he is an incredible filmmaker, but I don't think he is like super insightful to the human psyche or whatever. Like, I just don't think he is a big ideas guy, but I think he's such an incredible filmmaker that he can trick people into thinking he's a big ideas guy. (laughs) And so like the movies that are kind of humorless, the masters and the phantom threads of the world are the ones that I are into to an extent. There will be blood um, are the ones that I'm, I just really don't have a lot of patience for. Um, you know, the master, the first time I saw it, I was like, oh, my God, this is just so incredible because it just sent your mind in so many directions. And then the more times I watched it, I was just like, actually, none of this really means anything because of the way it's all sort of collided together and whatever. Um, so uh, for me, I, I just in general, like this movie is very uh, funny. Um, it's very charming. I uh, it's I wanted to ask you because um, there's something about this movie that feels unique to all of his movies in that this to me is the only movie of his that I've seen where the characters feel like fully three dimensional. And I want to ask you, like, do you think of like characters as a strong, cause he's clearly like as a director who working with actors, like that's a strong point of his, like he's so good with actors and getting great performances out of so many different, you know, actors throughout his career. And like, um, but do you think of the characters he writes as being like a strong point of his filmmaking? I would say yes in general. Um, I just think about every single one of his movies has a memorable character. Are they fully dimensional? Not all the time. I you know I th- certainly 
<laughs> Certainly Mark Wahlberg's character in Boogie Nights isn't the most exciting in terms of an arc right. that he experiences in any way. Uh, I, th- I, I think Boogie Nights is a good example of the thing I'm talking about, which isn't necessarily that he's bad at writing characters because he has so many memorable characters, as you say. But like he is they all are like sort of narrowly represent something mm. as opposed to being like fully three dimensional humans. Um, sure. Like if you really try to like st- sit down and figure out what the hell Adam Sandler's deal is in Punch Drunk Love, it's kind of hard to like, <laughs> like it, he's kind of a sketch. <laughs> you know, he is just sort of an embodiment of anxiety more than he is a full human person with a history and a life and everything. Um, yeah, you get little nuggets. You get little things like what the sisters did to him kind of in passing. Uh, you know, I I, I, yeah, I guess you're right. Maybe it's more of just what Adam Sandler does with his performance and certainly gestures and things is what I remember the most about his character as opposed to the character itself, which is a totally valid way of making movies, but it's something that, um, if the thing that the character represent, like if it's not speaking to me or it doesn't feel like it's all adding up into a larger meaningful piece, then it's something that diminishes upon repeat viewings and like punch drunk love that works and boogie nights. It's it's, it works a little less. And then something like uh, the master, it doesn't really work at all because I'm just like, I can't even see these characters as human beings because they're just so there's just so much empty space and so many question marks in terms. And I haven't seen the master in years. I might feel differently if I watch it. It's a little more impressionistic in terms of like what, what, what Freddie quell, what what his deal is <laughs> right um and he's so just unhinged me, yeah. i just tend to prefer something like licorice pizza where you really do get like the full uh you i feel like gary is such an incredible character um and <laughs> such an incredible expression of like a very specific thing that uh child actors are um which is just they are weird little businessmen <laughs> and like they're just, they're just forced to grow up too much and they just grow really cynical really fast. And they just get very, um, the ones who are career minded and who like last and know how to work the system in order to build their careers. Like, um, they, uh, they, they just feel like little adults in a, in a very amusing way. Um, and I, and I think Alana and all the stuff you see about her home life and just the clear sort of, um, embarrassment she has over her sort of Jewish identity and, you know, feeling unattractive as an actor and like feeling unfulfilled as a woman, you know, in a sort of a, just a shitty job and just not really knowing what to do next and all that. Like, um, I think you just, the whole movie is just, uh, about exploring these two characters, specifically Alana. Like she's the real main character of the movie. And I think that was actually like the pleasant surprise when I saw this movie was I saw yeah. the trailer and honestly you loved the trailer and I'm, I'm happy that you loved the trailer. I thought it was pretty bad because for me, um, whenever you have a trailer where it's like, here's a David Bowie song. And every time a David Bowie lyric happens that corresponds to an image in the movie, we're going to show that image from the movie. Like <laughs> lawmen beating up the wrong guy. Here's Gary getting arrested by the police. I'm like, I just roll my eyes and it didn't. And like the idea of just like, Oh, he's this little kind of chubby kid. Uh, and he's, you know, in love with her. And like, it just didn't seem like a compelling story. And then when I saw the movie and I realized that the, emotional journey is hers and that he is a way more interesting, complicated character than that. That was when I was like, Oh, okay. This movie's great. But, 
Um, yeah, his tendency to like jump from you know waterbeds to pinball machines. It, it, it does remind me of like, oh, I remember a time when I was going to try to start uh, a, a wedding videography business <laughs> on, on my own in my parents' basement and like see if I could actually pull that off or even starting a podcast network. Like we go through these phases of thinking, yeah. oh, yeah, I'm going to be a DIY musician or whatever. You know, it's like we sort of just it just sort of happens like there's sometimes not even a big plan like you don't lay it out. It just that's what I really liked about the movie It's like you don't actually see him behind the scenes like doing paperwork and trying to figure out the minutia of like how do I run a business he just sort of yeah. does it he's it's very it's very Rushmore this movie um or yeah the, at least I can the, see the, that. I should say the character of Gary Valentine is very Max Fisher yeah yeah um, totally and I think that that's a thing about this movie that's interesting is that it is a movie about the San Fernando Valley, uh, which is where Paul Thomas Anderson grew up. And it is about sort of the time Paul Thomas Anderson grew up in it or whatever. Um, and so in some ways it is a deeply nostalgic movie. Um, but it actually, it has a lot of very hard criticisms about that era as well, especially in the way that it is about Hollywood and it is about sort of the carte blanche that uh, powerful abusive men have in the world of Hollywood and, um, like that's sort of its main overriding, uh, preoccupation is just the various ways that, uh, this, this sort of, uh, latchkey fantasy world <laughs> of, of, uh, of child actors in seventies Hollywood is sort of complicated by the fact that they grow up to be from blame boys to being abusive men. <laughs> um, and, uh, like with the one thing it sort of has an unfiltered, uncomplicated nostalgia for is the idea of like kids being able to forge their own identities and kids not being sort of stalked by paranoid parents and kids, you know, not being sort of tracked by apps on their phone and kid, you know, like kids just sort of being able to just run around and be kids. And I think it really does have a full throated, uh, love with that youthful, um, just ridiculous, uh, energy. And that's the main tension of the movie is, is Gary Valentine going to become the Sean Penn character or is he going to like save his soul? And that's like the, the, you know, the, the scene with the wing song, you know, let me roll it. Like, that's the thing It's like Sean Penn would do one thing. Gary Valentine ends up doing the other, you know, Sean Penn would grope the woman who passes out on the waterbed, but Gary Valentine, because he still has a little bit of that childish innocence because he hasn't been grown completely cynical um, he doesn't, you know, and that's like, that's a moment that where he has to sort of make a choice about the person he has been pretending to be for everyone and who he actually is. And you see who he actually is with his brother as well. Like just how loving and sweet their relationship is. Oh yeah. That um, was, that, that, that relationship was really sweet indeed. I mean, most of it is. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I think it was early on that Brian Tallarico talked about, what you're talking about. Uh, the first time I saw it, I guess I was not picking up on as much of the whole, uh, like just how shitty every single man is to Alana. And then she realizes, Oh, actually there is a person that isn't shitty to me. And it turns out that's who I should be with in the end. And I almost felt like surprised that it went there because I thought, well, maybe they should just be friends and have this platonic connection that doesn't necessarily lead to them ending up together. 
which I, I, I don't know how I, I think I would have liked that just as much really as, as the ending we get. Uh, I think it should have ended with her saying hi as they, after they kiss. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm not crazy about just throwing out, tacking on a shot of at the end of her and hit, uh, him running together and she says I love you Gary you know I th- I would have liked a more yeah kind of punch drunk love here we go kind of approach to the end right uh, I yeah for me it's like I don't know it's a thing where yeah again like first time I watched the master I was just like oh wow this is so incredible there's so many interesting things going on it's so deep and like I didn't get all of it but clearly but clearly he knows what he's doing, so it must be something coherent. And then the more I watched The Master, I realized it wasn't. So I've seen Licorice Pizza once. This could be a thing where I watch it a couple more times and I go, uh, you know what? Actually, all of those themes are addressed, but they're not really they, – they don't really tie up in the end. So Because I am really ambivalent about what it means that they end up together. I don't know if it's a happy ending because this is a movie yeah. about like transactional relationships, right? This is – it, or, or the very beginning – this she has a transactional relationship with Gary. Gary being someone who wants to play like he's a hotshot Hollywood actor type and who wants to act like he is one of these men, he acts as if he has a transactional relationship with her. I think it's a lot closer to uh, just uh, just a much more you know typical childhood. He saw a cute girl <laughs> and he had the confidence to talk to her, so he talked to her. Um, but like she's she is only interested in him because he's a child actor and she's an actor and he's successful and has been in actual movies that she's seen. Um, and you get the, in that very first meeting, which is again, it's so great. Um, uh, it's so great and disorienting that you really don't know why she's holding a mirror. I was very confused about like who she was and like where they were and how, and who Gary was. Cause I was like, is this, are they in college? Did I miss something about the trailer? And they're in college and she's like, this is part of like a sorority hazing thing where she has to like walk up to random guys on campus and show them a mirror. Like I was so confused and I love that. (laughs) I love that disorienting nature that like super long shot uh, where they're chatting up, but like she's interested in him because she can get something out of him. Like she isn't totally innocent. She knows what she's doing when she goes out to dinner with Sean Penn. She's not like, wow, he must really think I'm Grace Kelly. Like she knows how Jewish she looks. She does not look like Grace <laughs> right. Kelly. Like, you yeah. know, you know, it's, which is, this is me using the sort of the understanding of her world of Hollywood in the seventies. Right. This is not me making any kind of judgment on her looks or whatever. She's an attractive woman, but you know what I'm saying? Like it's, it's, when a, a when a powerful man in Hollywood comes up to you and says, you know, you remind me of Grace um, and you look like Alana Haim looks and you are very well aware of how you look because you go on auditions and people tell you how Jewish you look like, you know, that's bullshit, but she can get something out of it. So she goes along with him. And, th- you know, you see that throughout when they're drinking and she's just sort of uh, making weird comments as he goes on these weird non sequiturs about World War Two or whatever. And that's what that's her with <laughs> Gary. Gary is like you know what, if I show up and I hang out, like, who knows what could happen? And, you know, that ultimately, like, she does use him to uh, ostensibly advance her career. You never really find out what happens with that movie where she was auditioning for Rainbow. It's pretty clear that she didn't actually get the part and that she was sort of talked to as if she was going to get the part so that Sean Penn could take her out to dinner and fuck her or whatever. But, like, um, you know, she goes to be his chaperone not because she's, like, got the hots for this 15-year-old kid. Um she has the hots for another kid. Like instantly she sees the other guy and she's like, right, Oh no, 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 right. no. That's the guy. So like Lance, <laughs> Lance, God, that character is really fucking funny. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, just, 
I, that, that was a very funny moment too with the uh, I forgot I forgot who said it it was probably somebody on Twitter who thought that uh, this was the origin story like Gary Val it's the ridiculous thing that people do with Tarantino movies but uh, Gary Valentine is going to grow up to be the mattress man like this is the origin story of the mattress man <laughs> like I don't think he's going to grow mean, up to be that he cr- toxic and cruel and I, nasty the, literally the only connection I see is that he sells mattresses <laughs> yeah Right. Um, but it, but uh, yeah, at any rate, like, so things like that happen. So she has, you know, there's all these transactional relationships, like literally her boss at the, at the end is like, I'm going to have you be seen with this person, you know, so that no one knows that I'm gay. Like there's all these, there's all these relationships in Hollywood, uh, that are just like, what am I getting out of you? What are you getting out of me? Do those things line up? Cool. Let's just get it. And it's like the most cynical possible uh, you know, version of a human relationship that kills any ideas of sort of love and affection and all that. And like the thing about Gary Valentine is he wants to be one of those guys, but he isn't. He's just he's just this sweet little dork. Um, and whenever he tries to talk a big game like that, he just is bad at it. Um, and so like at the end when they end up together, I don't know if that's a happy ending necessarily. Like I do think there is something to the movie going she is rejecting the sort of cynical adult world and retreating back into the world of children. Like um, that to me, like I, I, I think it, there's a lot of really like Paul Thomas Anderson is a director of amazing moments. So this is kind of a big thing to say or whatever, but like, I kind of think the greatest moment for me in his filmography is the uh, moving uh, truck going backwards. Uh, down the hills of LA because it is this perfect moment of one, just it's so tense. Like just, it just purely on a mechanical like story level. You're just like, Oh God, what if they get fucking get caught? Oh my God. What if they smash into someone? They are a massive truck careening down, <laughs> you know, uh, careening down, uh, the, the hills of wherever Beverly Hills or I don't know where it is in LA. I don't know LA well enough, but like Sherman Oaks know, or one of those yeah. areas. Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember. Sure. So like they could be smashing into a car, they could die, they could get fucked up and then, or they could get caught by this guy who comes and murders them and gets away with it because he's a fucking powerful movie producer like it's so scary and tense and also it's just such a beautiful image because it is like she is so capable she is so amazing at driving like what they say you know and she really did it that's what's great it's like uh, i he's seeing interviews with alana hyam she actually did that driving you know oh, really was, yeah it's I, it's she was terrified but you know she actually did it that strikes me as wholly unnecessary, but I mean, it's cool, I guess. But like, but for me, it's just more important that the character did it. It's more important that yeah. like the character actually has like real practical skills. There's the thing where Gary is like trying to coach her before she goes to see the casting agent and is like, yeah, just, just tell him you can sing and dance. And it's this moment she has where she's like, this motherfucker doesn't think I can sing and dance. I don't know if this motherfucker has any actual faith in me at all, or if he's just helping me, you know, cause he wants to fuck me or whatever. Um, and she's like, I can sing and dance. And she's very emphatic about it. Um, and it's, it's this, and it's just this moment where she is just like, not only could you not fucking do this, Gary, like no one can fucking do this. I am fucking good at driving this truck. And, um, but it's also a very strong image of her backsliding. It's just, it's literally just like what she is doing with Gary. It is the thing that sort of leads her to go, you know what? I need to get involved in like some fucking adult shit like this. All of this bullshit is terrible for me. Um, And the thing that makes her get involved with the politician 
is is just this long, prolonged sequence of her just falling backwards. Uh, and mm. I, I just think it's so beautiful in terms of like just thematically and plot and everything. And it's just such a cool sequence. Um, and so like for me, when she ends up with Gary, is she falling backwards? Like, is this actually, uh, you know, is this actually her failing uh, in some key way? And the answer is, I don't know. I got to watch it again. I got to. I don't know either. I don't know. And I kind of liked that feeling of, well, maybe it isn't necessarily happy. Even when they collide into each other, they fall down. It's not like this beautiful embrace. It's more like this messy (laughs) running into one another moment, you know, Uh, where they where they run into each other outside the, the movie theater showing, I believe, live and let die. Yeah. Was it? Yeah. Yeah, I, I love that moment. I love when they finally go back into the the, the pinball machine arcade place. Uh, yeah, no, I I I I guess yeah, I didn't get like that. Ooh, I mean, maybe that's you know again expectations for Paul Thomas Anderson's movies are very high. I know this was filmed during the pandemic. I you know and like there's just some uh, I think. I think the only time I really cringe was with regarding John Michael Higgins scenes and they're very brief. And yet I understand his justification for them is that he did that because that was true to the times, you know, but, uh, it's one of those moments in within an audience where I, I'm not finding it funny. I'm finding it very uncomfortable and people are laughing and, that led to, um, you know, a lot of Asian film critics really calling, you know, him out for including these scenes. And in the end, I mostly came down on it as, I don't know if they were necessary. They could have been on the cutting room floor and I would have been fine. Uh, I don't think they really add a whole lot to the movie for them to be there. No, they're, they're poorly done. There's, there's, there's way to do them better. And I think the problem is the casting of John Michael Higgins, who is a very broad comic actor. And I think there is a way to do it without going like that extreme with the, with the sort of stereotypical offensive Asian voice that is, that would get the point across. But the point of the movie, like the point of the movie is these sort of men who have carte blanche to treat the women in their life, however they feel and have a very transactional. Yeah. I get why it's there. And like clearly his Japanese, his Japanese wife is there as sort of a token of how authentic his Japanese restaurant as a restaurateur is. And like that first scene with him and his first wife is very much, uh, set up from her perspective, you know, like, uh, I think it was Mike Nichols, uh, talking about who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, which was the first film that Mike Nichols ever directed. He said, the thing he had to learn with film that is different from play is that with film, you have to make a decision as a director. Who is the scene happening to? Um, what, how, who is this moment happening to? Cause a play, the audience can choose to look at whoever they want, but a director you have as an editor, you, you got to tell them who they're looking at and who is the scene happening to. And Paul Thomas Anderson tells the audience, this scene is happening to the wife. It's not when he does that voice. It's when the, uh, it's when Gary's mom is reading out that, uh, little PR piece and says, you know, adorable China doll, uh, waitresses or something along those lines. And you just see this, like, you just see her get so fucking sad. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's this, it's 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 sort of a really upsetting moment. And then then that's what the whole scene is about. The whole scene is about how all of this feels to her. 
Um, the problem is Paul Thomas Anderson is a filmmaker who, again, he does this thing that's the slightest bit rude or sort of unexpected, and he's going to have a bunch of PTA bros in the audience go, oh, oh, oh my God, oh, that's so funny. And it's just like, shut up. I don't, it's not that good. Uh, so, yeah. like, so he, it, it's just sort of missed. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it was, it was a bad choice, uh, because it is sort of, you can get this character's point across without, uh, going in that direction. And right. Right. You know, uh, it's a bad choice because, uh, it, it was just the, the execution of it was poor and it's, a um, but like, I mean, I, it's, it's very easy to see what he was trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't know. I, I'm, I'm also the person who thinks that the whole point of the Bruce Lee scene in once upon a time in Hollywood is just how ridiculous it is, um, to sort of just like, we know that no one could fucking kick Bruce Lee's ass. We're saying this fictional character is, it's so tough that he could kick Bruce Lee's ass. Like it's so ridiculous the way that scene plays out that it's specifically calling attention to how ridiculous it is. And there were a lot of people, including Asian American film critics, uh, whose feelings on the matter should be prioritized, who felt very strongly not that. So like, yeah, you know, uh, I can only feel the way I, I felt, but like, I certainly respect, uh, anyone who feels differently. Um, but for me, uh, yeah, those scenes weren't, those scenes were bad, but, uh, those scenes, those scenes were bad because they did a bad job of executing the clear purpose they had, which was not make the audience laugh with funny stereotypical Asian voice. It was, you know, it was like point out, uh, again, the, uh, sort of reckless abandon with which, you know, powerful white men can do whatever they want in this world. Um, yeah. And the other controversy, obviously is the age gap between the two of them. Uh, I listened to a whole podcast that had the complete opposite reaction. That was almost, I don't know. I think taking it way too far of like, this movie is endorsing pedophilia or, you know, like really, taking it completely the wrong way to the point where it's like, I don't know if you actually watched the movie or what, if you just read about it. Cause it's mostly a platonic relationship up until the end. And I think a lot of people just well, uh, were rubbed the wrong it way. Is a, it is a non-sexual relationship. Yes. It's a non-sexual. It is in no way a platonic relationship. Okay. Like yeah. Well, he, yeah, there's, they are, there's, they are romantically entangled, but it is non-sexual in a non-sexual way. Right. Okay. Yeah. No, that makes sense. But yeah, just that I, it's not something that rubbed me the wrong way watching it in the moment. It's something that like, oh, I guess I could see why people would have that reaction uh, later on. But as I'm watching the movie, I, it doesn't bother me, (laughs) you know, Uh, because I just think that I am enjoying the time spent with these two people as they're having this uh, connection together. And, you know, it doesn't really cross a line in any way that made me uncomfortable, but I, I can totally see the argument the other way, just not to the, not to the extreme of, you know, calling Paul Thomas Anderson irresponsible. That was like their ultimate, like he's an irresponsible filmmaker for making this movie and including the fact that, you know, she's 25 and he's 15. And I was just, I just went, nah, no, you're, 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 I think your read is a little too much (laughs) on, on just what they're experiencing together. Yeah. I, I mean, again, I would highly recommend people sort of disengage from 
the <laughs> film culture wars in general and let everyone feel the way they're going to feel and have no oh yeah 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 i don't i don't want to like, i don't want to dismiss anybody's reaction and be like you're yeah i i don't mean but to also come more importantly like when you see people giving like clearly misinformed uncharitable reads you can just be like yeah well you know i don't give a fuck if you're wrong because there's so many people who are so who so wrong about so many things in this world. Like, go ahead, yeah. be wrong. Like, I don't give a fuck. So, like, yeah, people can say that all they want. Paul Thomas Anderson is just fine. I don't care. Um, but uh, yeah, I, it's it's the the point of the movie is absolutely. Um, I guess I guess the better way to phrase this is there are some people who believe that like age of consent laws are like handed down from like uh they're like handed down and they're just like they're immutable like moral truths as opposed mm-hmm. to like sort of piecemeal you know handled the you know sort of thrown together things that uh are used to you know minimize the amount of sexual predation that happens and you can be a fucking grown human adult and have someone take advantage of you uh, <laughs> because you're naive. Like it, it's not like once you turn 18, you suddenly know everything uh, and then you can't be taken advantage of. And therefore like age of consent works like consent is not just about age. It's about a, a lot of things or whatever. Um, and so like, this is a movie about literally she's a 25 year old woman who is constantly having guys sort of being predatory towards her and, and looking yeah. to use her and being in positions of power where, you know, her boss can slap her ass and she doesn't feel she can say no. And they're both adults. But like that's, you know, it's there's so the idea that there is this um, extremely chaste uh, uh, romance between uh, Alana and Gary uh, is like somehow endorsing predatory behavior is, is very funny to me. But like um, mm-hmm. that's what I, I felt. But like you. I, the point of the movie is of, about sort of the lines between adults and children and about uh, sort of like what you lose when you leave childhood and what you uh, and specifically about Hollywood and sort of the cynical nature of all the adults in it. And in the world of Hollywood, some of the children are the adults who are cynical, like uh, adults in in this in this phrasing uh, framing is not a matter of turning 18. It's a matter of knowing your power and your position and being cynical enough to use them to your advantage. Um, so, uh, I think, I think what makes people really uncomfortable (laughs) is that, is that it's, uh, it's is that it's specifically a kinky romance between the two. <laughs> I think that's actually <laughs> the thing that people don't like is that it's not it's not like they don't actually have any kind of sexual contact. They kiss uh, at the very end of the movie, but the entire movie is a lot of power games and a lot of. Uh, her holding over his head that he's just a teenager and she's a grown woman and she, you know, has sexual power that he can't touch because she, as a grown woman, is much more desirable than he ever will be as a teenage boy. And it's about him holding stuff over her head about, uh, you know, having this business and about being established in the industry and uh, and about all these other women who who were more interested in him or whatever. And I think that's the thing that actually makes people uncomfortable is that the two of them have a very kinky relationship that I think is, uh, personally, I think is very funny, but like, 
It's, oh yeah, it's, like it's, that scene where she's trying to get the sell the waterbed over yeah, the phone, yeah. and he's exactly. just like, yeah, that that's a great moment for sure. When that, you see her, the way control. that scene is the, the way that scene is played. It is about Gary being upset, partially because she is flirting with someone uh, who. If she wants to, she can go choose to have sex with. He's an adult on the phone, you know, like she can she has this power to just sort of make that choice whenever she wants. And it's about her demonstrating that to him. And it's also like the scene is specifically about how it kind of turns him on a little. And now that's like <laughs> that's more upsetting to him that he like doesn't have control over his feelings and his emotions because he's a fucking teenager. Um and uh yeah, I mean Yeah, that's uh, the same with like him saying uh I, I, you know, you'll, you'll show your boobs to millions of people, uh, you know, if you're right. on a movie on a movie set, but you won't show them to me. It's like, I, I like that uh, review I sent you from uh, Lauren Wilford on letterbox. I like what she said about, uh, you know, the movie kind of being about romantic jealousy and it's not about what they're doing with someone else so much as what that says about you. And, you know, what it says about Gary in those moments, I think, yeah, like he's he wants to be an adult, but he's still a teenager. Well, he know? loves being with Alana as long as being with Alana makes him feel sexy and powerful. And then right, as, soon, right. as, as soon as she flips that on him, then he you know starts to protest. And uh, he's still not enough of a fucking like, you know chud that he is going to then go well in that case when i have power over you i'm gonna grope you or whatever like in the scene with the you know with the wing song like that is you know he is he is still not corrupted in that way that every other man in the fucking movie is corrupted um and uh but um the whole movie is this sort of for me the movie again the mike nichols question like who is this happening to for me um, even though she's not in every scene or whatever, for me, this movie is happening to Alana. And the question for Alana is, how cynical am I going to be, um, which Paul Thomas Anderson sort of equates with adulthood, like how adult am I going to be? How cynical am I going to be? How much am I going to use people? How much am I going to sit here and listen to Sean Penn be a drunk fucking raving asshole and pretend that it's really interesting <laughs> um, <laughs> because it might help me get a, a important uh, job that will, you know, start my career. And like, what am, what am I willing to do? And uh, when, and I don't think either direction is correct. I don't think that the movie generally views Gary as like, yeah, that's the, that's the guy who you really deserve because Gary's a child. Gary is in, in you know, immature. He's emotional and he's, you know, and he, he likes things his way and he gets, you know, he gets grumpy when they're not his way and needs like he, you know, he's not this like sort of idealized, like nice guy that if only she would realize, you know, um, you know, then they could be happy together forever. So that's why for me, when I see the ending, I don't know for sure if I think of it as a, uh, a happy ending or if it's her backsliding again. Well, I um, thought, I thought you might not connect with, Gary in the beginning because he does have essentially a love at first sight kind of experience where he's even telling his brother outside the hot dog stand, I just met the woman I'm going to marry, you know, and like that, that quick jump. I mean, we all, I'm, yeah, we all experience that when we're teenagers, like we really get our heads in the clouds and idealize mm -hmm. the romantic life. And, Oh, I, you know, I just fell in love right away and uh, butterflies. And I can't wait to see what our future is going to be like together without thinking about the reality of the situation. And you're probably not going to end up with the person that you're with in high school. 
I'm not the girl I'm gonna marry one day, Greg. Oh, yeah? And you're gonna be my best man. I'm glad that you responded to his character because uh, I know that can that can rub you the wrong way in the past with other I don't movies. respond to movies that imply that love at first sight is like, oh, yeah, that's just how love works. You see a human being, you know nothing about them, and you decide that that's the person you're going to spend the rest of your life with. Like, I don't like movies that assume that point of view. But characters assuming that point of view, especially teenagers uh, who are who again are immature, like that makes all the sense in the world to me because yeah, that happens in Rushmore more or less. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, it's you know it's about him, and he is an extraordinary person as well. He isn't just some other kid, child actor or whatever. Uh, he is genuinely admirable in the way that he believes in himself, despite the fact that he's, you know, sort of chubby and not traditionally handsome the way that Lance is. Um, it's very admirable in the way that, uh, you know, he believes in his visions and his businesses, that he is like this guy who um, has these ideas and takes bets on himself. And um, there, it's the, he's admirable in the same way that a Max Fisher is admirable and you watch Max Fisher and Rushmore and you go, you fucking goof. But also you go, <laughs> mm, you know what? I bet if I was more like that when I was a teenager, I would have been happier. Like I bet, <laughs> you know, yeah. I, bet, I bet if I wasn't so riddled with insecurities when I was a teenager, I could have done so many interesting things and met so many interesting people the way Max Fisher does in this movie. And there is part of you that looks at Max Fisher and you go, yeah, that guy's cool. Like good for him. Um, and Gary Valentine's the same way. So like, there is a reason why these characters that these teenage boys like uh, sort of set their sights on are, are given a little bit of pause. Um, you know, his his game is really incredible in that first scene of them together. Um, and again, like it's a transactional thing for her. She's not like, you know what? There is something kind of sexy about that Gary kid. No, she's going, you know what? It might not be. You know, he's he's a weird dude and I don't have to do anything. I'm not making any kind of commitment to, you know, have sex with this fucking teenager. I can just show up at this restaurant and see what his whole deal is because he's a really fascinating person. Um, and yeah, he I'm might just, help I'm, my career. I'm just amazed that, like, yeah, he's all in so quickly, too, with her. You know, and just kind of like, you're not going to forget me. Just like, I'm not going to forget you. You know, it's like, you just met. <laughs> you know, but I, I, but I understand that when you're thinking that way. Well, obviously. we're watching we're watching the movie about the two characters where he said that to her and then that ended up being the case. We don't know how many other people he said that to. That's true. Um, Apparently he's gotten some hand jobs <laughs> from other people, uh, according to. Right. We don't yeah. really get any like we see the jealousy that she has when he, you know, uh, she has sort of. Oh God, that's all. That's such a great scene, too, with the waterbed where she sort of. <laughs> Maybe against her better judgment, like uh, for the big waterbed grand opening, like, you know, it's just wearing the bikini uh, and like he's just sort of fawning over how, how gorgeous she looks and she's just sort of enjoying the attention. And then as soon as uh, she sees him fawning over that other girl, uh, he she's just like, I'm a fucking idiot. Like, what am I fucking doing wearing this bikini in this fucking waterbed store? <laughs> like, she gets her, da- her dad's reaction when she comes home is priceless. Yeah, I love Man, that moment. Alana Haim is it's I think for both Alana Haim and uh, is it Cooper Hoffman is yeah. plays Gary. Yeah. I think both Alana Haim and Cooper Hoffman, I don't know if I look at them and be like, oh, yeah, those are great actors. And I can't wait to see what they do for the rest of their film careers. Like, um, I don't necessarily know if they are 
great actors in the traditional sense where it's like, yeah, I can't wait to watch them be in more movies and stuff. But like, they're so perfectly cast. Um, I think the thing that makes the Alana character work so well is that she is so, she, she has such a hair trigger on her temper. And then she get she just had Alana Haim just has so much energy that she just explodes at people. And when she gets a uh, sort of confrontational, um, that is just really endearing and, in a way that, like, as a young woman uh, stuck in the film industry in the 70s, like, a lot of the way, a lot of her agency, um, she doesn't, you know, she she sort of struggles with having agency in that world. Like, I think the way that she sort of explodes at people uh, sort of counteracts a lot of that and makes her uh, a lot more than just, there's a lot of stories that you could tell about the way that, Hollywood is abusive and terrible in the way that, you know, rich, powerful men use women and stuff like that, that are just sort of like, oh, isn't it terrible that, you know, these terrible things are happening to these poor women and they're just sort of flattened out into their victim status or whatever. And she just always feels like a completely three-dimensional character making choices um, because she just has that sort of raucous uh, energy. Um, and the, and I it's... I don't know. Like, there's probably other actors who could do that, but she just does it so well. And then, um, first uh, time out of the gate, too. It's, yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. Am- amazing for both of them. Yeah, I mean, I think these are. I I have to think, and I'm not anyone who reads any. Inter- I'm not someone who reads any interviews. So you would be able to tell tell me this more than me. I have to think this is a movie that got started because Philip Seymour Ho- or not Philip Seymour Hoffman, because Paul Thomas Anderson knew Cooper and Alana because he did all those Hame music videos and because he knew Cooper through his father. And like, I have to think that it's like, these are roles that I know these kids, I know that they can do this. Um, I, these are the things that I find endearing about them. Um, and it's like, these are, there's a special sort of something that happens when you have someone who's writing a role specifically for someone that they, um, that they really uh, love, <laughs> not, not <laughs> like that they just have like a real fondness for and they write this role for them because they're so excited about seeing the potential of this person the way that no one else does. Um, and I think like Cooper Hoffman is a perfect blend of he, because he is probably a rich kid, he's Philip Seymour Hoffman's son. Like he probably is someone who wouldn't think twice about being in these worlds and these spheres of power. And probably at some point he has just had very casual interactions with the most famous people in the world because he's Philip Seymour Hoffman's son. So he's, I saw, I know all I know for sure is I saw a gif of him at the Academy Awards. Uh, He, I guess Philip Seymour Hoffman took him to the Academy Awards one year for the master. And there's like a gif of him when Amy Adams, I don't know if she won or she was just nominated, but there's a gif of, uh, Cooper behind her giving big thumbs up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, her, that's that was adorable. Very, very cute. So like, he's just a kid who is just like totally confident and unfazed in this world because that's just sort of his whole life growing up. But because of how he looks and because uh, he just kind of looks goofy and um, like he really also just feels like he never, the reason I didn't, feel uncomfortable at any point during this romance is because he doesn't feel capable of being predatory even when he's trying to be predatory. Like he (laughs) is just, he is just such a goofy looking kid. Um, 
Um, yeah, and, and she won't let and she won't let him. You know, well, it's no, no, like, no, no, no. It's not like it's not like there's scenes where it gets close or anything. But I'm just saying, like, you never watching or for me, I never as an audience member watching the movie thought there was going to be a scene later where he turns and becomes like. You know, it's a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. You go in expecting something shocking and surprising and, you know. And uh, I didn't get it. And that's, <laughs> so, like, and that's that's kind of what took me aback is that maybe it was pretty straightforward. Yeah, pretty much. Our love is a lie. I mean, obviously Bradley Cooper comes in and, and just be, <laughs> he's so ridiculously weird at times, but I, I mean, I've, I've always been of the opinion probably ever since going back to seeing, uh, you know, uh, Bradley Cooper work with, uh, David Wayne on a couple of occasions on like really early Stella shorts and things like that. Uh, I always, I've always been of the opinion that Bradley Cooper should just do comedy. Cause I think he's pretty hilarious whenever he does. Uh, yeah. he's, he's great in this. He I haven't really, seen Nightmare Alley. I want to see Nightmare Alley, but uh, uh, I, I bet he's not funny in that. That's my guess. <laughs> I, bet, I bet he's not too. But like, I mean, you know, he might be good or whatever. But yeah, certainly, um, Bradley Cooper's not one of my favorite actors or anything. But he usually uh, rises to the occasion. And again, it's Paul Thomas Anderson. He knows how to work with actors. So uh, I wasn't shocked by how good Bradley Cooper was. If anything, um, the the coked up. Uh, deluded Hollywood producer is like such a stock character that he's sort of one of the least, he's not the, like it's the best stretch of the movie, but he's sort of the least like delightfully surprising characters in the movie. I would say like, he is exactly who you think that guy is. And then like, at some point I realized like, Oh, John Peters, that's a real person. I actually know things about John Peters. Yes. This is John Peters. Okay. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Um, um, but, uh, Whereas, like someone like uh, who who'd you say played the casting agent? Harriet Sansom Harris. She was also in Phantom Thread, and uh, she was uh, Sammy Jenkins' wife in Memento. Weird. Which I, yeah, I was like, oh, that's wild. I had no idea. But she's been one of those people that shows just shows up in in small parts. Yeah. The so years. so like for me, that scene is like, oh man, this is a character who I didn't expect her to be. Oh, right. Um, right. You know, this is this is like if you she, they show up to see the casting agent, you you expect the casting agent to be the most cynical. And this scene is going to be about how cynical she is. And just and like to an extent it is. But like the way that she's just delighted in Alana and uh, the way it's sort of like you're looking at it and you're like, is she does she actually b- believe that Alana could do all this shit? Or is she just <laughs> like, is she delighted because Alana can do it? Or is she delighted because Alana is saying that she could do it and she just likes the moxie? <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know. But uh, but I thought she whereas like Brandon I Cooper see a dog. Like, yeah. I, just like when she does that whole moment, I'm, I was like losing it. I, right. I, I love that. And I guess, you know, there's like. In, in, in inherent vice, there's more of that. Like, there's more of these like random, weird, crazy things that happen, and you don't know if uh, Joanna Newsom is a real character or she's just somebody in Joaquin Phoenix's head. Just like a lot, there's a lot more crazy, random, weird stuff in inherent vice that probably draws me more to it. Uh, like, you know, just a little detour with Martin Short or something. You know, I just. I kind of wanted a little bit more of that, even though I know this is a completely different movie. Too. Yeah, I don't, I don't think the surreal tone would have worked too well um, 
here. No, you're right. You're right. But, it's, uh, it's more simple. I mean, again, for me, this is uh, this is the Paul Thomas Anderson truther talking. Like to me, one of the reasons this is my favorite movie is because it's the only Paul Thomas Anderson movie where I don't really have any issues with it. Like I don't know, Paul Punch Drunk Love might be that movie as well, but it's been a long time since I've seen it, and ever, and whenever I think about like watching it again, I go, uh, I bet there's parts of this that feel kind of uh, awkward now. Like I don't know if I would really buy. Uh, I think, I don't know if I would buy Adam Sandler's performance the way I did 10 years ago, or I don't know, but, uh, maybe that's great. I can't speak to it cause I haven't seen it in 10 years, but, um, like for me, like inherent vice is, has a lot of really great, very funny scenes and has just Joaquin Phoenix being incredible the whole time. And then it also has the romance, which totally fucking sucks. And it has that ending, which totally fucking sucks. And you just go, Oh God, who cares? Or I go, obviously. I'm speaking from my own <laughs> subjective opinion. I'm not trying to convince anybody of anything. I don't care. But I'm of just course, saying, like, course. for me, when I watch that movie, I'm just so delighted. And then I, I've seen that movie, like, three times now. Or I guess four times now. Um, and I just, I'm just so delighted with the whole movie. And then once I reach the point where I know we're going to get back into the whole, is it, is it Blake Lively in that movie? Uh, Catherine Waterston. Catherine Watterson. Once we get to the whole Catherine Watterson stuff, I'm like, oh, God, this character is so terrible. And none of these scenes between the two, her and Doc mean anything. And it's just I can't believe that this is like where the movie ends up. It's just so not interesting. <laughs> you and should just uh, you should turn off the movie after Josh Brolin eats the pot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Josh Brolin eats the pot, and it's like one of the greatest things ever. And that's where the movie should. End. I mean, I love the, I love the weird little light that shines in Joaquin's face at the, yes. in the very, very last shot. But yes. like, I don't actually care. I like, I don't actually care about anything that's happening there. And I don't. And like, all of the dialogue in those two scenes, like, might as well not be in English for how much it means to me. Whereas, like, Licorice Pizza, because it is sort of, you could say, less ambitious. I don't know. To me. To me, it's more ambitious to try to stick the landing instead of throwing a Hail Mary into some sort of enigmatic profundity. Like, but like because it is more traditional story uh, and more narrow in its scope than Inherent Vice, like I just I just don't have that issue with it. Well, that's great to hear. I mean, you know, for me, I I just took it as like, well, you know, some connections flourish and, you know, some just die out almost immediately. You know, certainly the, she, she's certainly not meant to have a long-term uh, affair with Sean Penn in any way. He doesn't care about her. He just cares about his ego. Right. Uh, and yeah, I mean like these are just things that happen. But the way that plays out is still so great. It's so surprising because yeah. there's a moment where Tom Waits just shouts, <laughs> Tom Waits shouts, I need, I need three bar stools. I need some Everclear. I need a lighter. Meet me on the eighth hole. And like when he says meet me on the eighth hole, you don't even know that they're on a golf course at the time. Like you don't know the context of the restaurant he's in. Right, right. So it just sounds, it just plays like a non sequitur. It just plays like when Jimmy Stewart picks up the, uh, phone Philadelphia story and goes, this is the voice of doom calling. I'm the, I come for the seventh son of the seventh son. And it's just him being wacky and crazy. Like I thought it was just a weird non sequitur. And then later on they leave the restaurant and I'm like, Oh, where are they going? And then I see the fucking bar stools on fire. I'm like, Holy shit. He wasn't joking. Like, Oh man. Uh, I mean, again, it's, it's the thing where, again, it's a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. So 
the, the, I think the reason Paul Thomas Anderson is so exciting a filmmaker for so many people, even if I don't consider him as great as so many, as so many other people do, is because there is that feeling of just anything can happen when you sit down to a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Exactly. I think that's the thing with Quentin Tarantino as well, is just you know that some shit is going to go down that you catches you off guard and you just go, wait a second, this isn't the movie I thought it was going to be. Ever since Quentin Tarantino made Death Proof, uh, at, like he has been on that game where he is like, I'm going to sell you one thing. Who the fuck knows what I'm going to deliver? <laughs> um, and Paul Thomas Anderson is that too. So I understand like, uh, I like, I understand why the episodic nature works because any given episode, um, even in retrospect, you look at it and you go, oh yeah, she was never going to be a rainbow. I'm in that audition and she is good. She's good at acting. Like the character Alana playing that, sort of shitty save the tiger hippie hitchhiker kind of character you look at it and you go oh man maybe she's maybe that's where this movie goes maybe she becomes a movie star and she kind of outgrows gary and it becomes a movie about gary's jealous or whatever and like um i do like that uh, that his episodic nature sort of lends itself to uh you seeing the potential future of all of these interactions even if in the end it's like in retrospect you go well yeah of course he was, she was never going to have any kind of, well, yeah, and, and, and in your, in your early twenties, maybe, maybe longer life is kind of episodic, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, like, like we talked about, we were DIY musicians for a while and then, uh, we did a podcast, like we just yeah. did these things, you know, and didn't always put a lot of huge thought into them <laughs> or took them super seriously in any yeah. way. It was just like, let's just do them, you know? I and I start working at whole foods and I go, you know, if I stick here long enough, I can get these ready, you know, like, I guess, I guess I could be like the guy who's, you know, working in the bakery at some point, maybe I'll be the shift lead. And then it's like <laughs> fucking, you know, uh, uh, 18 months later, I'm not working there anymore. And it's like, Oh, I had this whole projected future of my time. at uh, fucking whole foods. and I don't work there anymore. <laughs> like that's your, that's, that's a lot of people's lives now because, no one sticks at the same job anymore is you just like yeah. you start working somewhere and you start going like yeah you know what this could be I could do this and then I could branch out and do that and like maybe they would hire me on to do that and like and then it's just like oh no actually I never liked working there to begin with I don't know why I had a future I thought I had a future there like what the fuck was I thinking like yeah life is definitely episodic when you're young yeah and it just gets crazier and crazier as you get older uh especially in in the times we're living in but i i think the reason why paul thomas anderson's films resonate so strongly with me is that they they do tap into some deeper emotion in a way that even i would say quentin tarantino's movies don't for me for the most part like they're more of like an exercise in style in the way that like brian de palma would do Whereas I, I always tend to have big feelings watching Paul Thomas Anderson movies. I know that's not the case for you with every one of them, but, uh, and he has, he has a love of actors and that's probably the thing I, as I'm getting older and I, I mean, I love film and I love, you know, I love cinematography or I love the use of music. I love so many facets of it, but it, honestly, if somebody were told me to rank the things that I love the most about movies, acting and actors would be number one. I, I am so drawn to the way that he is drawn to someone like Joaquin Phoenix or Daniel Day Lewis or Alana Hyam. And, you know, I just, that, that, that kind of just draws me in, you know, I'm just, I get really focused and heck I even just, I watched it. I watched the last of the Mohicans the other night and I was like, this movie isn't that great, but man, I could just watch Daniel Day Lewis do this for two hours because <laughs> he's Daniel Day Lewis. I don't know. You know, 
like he can be in a subpar movie and I'll still get some pleasure out of it because Mm -hmm. the acting is always strong from him. And I think Paul Thomas Anderson, like, yeah, he gets probably the most excited about the acting part. (laughs) I get that impression. And the performances don't have a time to wear out their welcome. If this was a movie that had an hour of Bradley Cooper, you probably would be like, yeah, yeah, Bradley Cooper was fine. But this is a movie that has 15 minutes of Bradley Cooper. And you're like, holy shit, that was so much fun. Right. Uh, Right. Because it's episodic, you just, you know, even Benny Safdie can't can't sink the movie. (laughs) <laughs> who, I don't, who I don't think is a good actor and I don't know why he acts in movies like yeah. you're already a super successful director just do that part yeah I'm kind of with you there yeah yeah uh, yeah and that that whole scene they have together at the restaurant and the fact that it's focused mo- mo- mostly on Alana's reaction to the situation I think uh, makes that scene even even more powerful yeah uh, yeah, no, I just, I, I, the more I think about it, the more I do like licorice pizza and I'm glad that you loved licorice pizza. And I think yeah. I'm going to like it more and more over time. I, I get that feeling anyway. I think, uh, I think if I, I think probably this, I would consider this the best movie of 2021. Like I think, I think I would put this again, West Side Story is a movie I put at number one because I had an amazing theatrical experience. And this is another sure. one where I had an amazing theatrical experience. So whatever. But like, I do think that this is. Uh, probably the best movie I saw last year. That's thrilling to hear. Wow. But it's also weird for me. I, I feel weird in the same way I felt about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. Where I'm like, why don't I love this the way a lot of other people are? And I'm 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 not going to get to the point where I'm like, I have to love this. I must brainwash myself. I have to watch it over and over and yeah. over again. You know, it, it's just just that my it's possible for me not to be head over heels, absolutely a hundred percent in love with what some of my favorite filmmakers do at all times. Uh, I don't know. They're there again, once upon a time in Hollywood, very episodic and just some choices. I, I almost like, I mean, you talked about how he's a filmmaker that constantly surprises even with, with what he chooses to do in the last act, I was like, oh, okay, he's going to do kind of what he did in, in Inglorious Bastards and subvert your expectations of what's going to happen. I mean, he does it in a great way, don't get me wrong. Uh, but at the same time, I also felt like his earlier work primed me to expect a big, like, okay, we're not going to do what you think we're going to do with this moment in history kind of experience. Uh, and I don't know, maybe it's similar with licorice pizza. There isn't, there isn't a big, like, holy shit, that was insane. Oh my God. But yeah, no, the, at the same time, look at that sequence with the truck. Yeah. That's, that's an incredibly memorable sequence in every way, shape and form. So I think we would probably have to have a conversation about, uh, once upon a time in Hollywood to unpack the, the ending as well. So I I just, I'll just, I'll just let your comment stand as is. Um, no, I mean you can you can comment on it. I don't mind if if you want to take a couple of minutes. I don't I don't mind that. We we I sort of think it's fair that. to Yeah, I think we already had the conversation. I'll just say I think it's fair to say that what happens at the end of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is very surprising given that it sets up historical expectations that it subverts. <laughs> yeah. I, I no, I guess you're right. I guess you're right. I just it, it, my response to it was very different from a lot of people and I kind of went Oh, okay. And maybe it's just me right now. Maybe I'm not feeling it. Maybe there's just something about what these two directors are doing at this point in time with this particular era 
that isn't hitting, you know, a home run for me in the way that I expected. Because I expect to love their movies the way yeah. I love most of their work. So. Well, I mean, I think this has always been something that's different between me and you, which is I am, I am not loyal, and I'm not, and I'm very cynical, and I just every time I see a great movie, I go, well, I'm glad they were able to do that. That director will probably never be able to achieve that again. Um, and you know, <laughs> I'm very I, different. <laughs> like yep. I like the Lighthouse was my favorite movie that the year it came out and I haven't watched the trailer for the new Eggers movie, but I'm already prepared to not like Eggers anymore. Like it's just probably going to happen. Just my track record is my track record is I, I listen to hail to the thief and it's the most important album I've ever heard. And then I listen to in rainbows once and I go, okay, I guess I'm done with Radiohead and never listen to them again. <laughs> like that's, that's always been how I've been. No, um, and I got to keep going. I, yeah. I, I, that's just how I am. I, I do yeah. want to, I do want to ask you though, like, is there, is there a movie you can think of recently that you just were totally, you know, blown away by and you're like, my God, this is so great. And everyone else's reaction was kind of tepid or small. That's a good question. I can't think of anything off the top of my head. I'd have to go back and look at my list. That's a good question. Hmm. Because I, I'm just, I just, people are going to, you know, uh, do you remember when we first, you know, started hanging out, we first started talking about movies and I, I came to a, uh, I came to a DIY show and I was absolutely raving about uh, burn after reading. Um, and I was just like, I just, it was so incredible. It's the funniest movie I've ever seen. And I don't know if you had seen it or you just heard bad things about it. No, no, I'd seen it. And I was like, eh, it was all right, I guess. Yeah. I mean, eh. and then now, reaction, now I love it. Now I think re- it's a masterpiece. Your reaction was a lot of people's reactions. A lot of people, they went into it. They, they had just seen No Country for Old Men. And they were like, good, Coen Brothers making big, serious, important, heavy, whatever. And then they saw this just really mean-spirited, crazy, zany comedy or whatever. And they were like, this is beneath them. You know, this these are the people who made No Country for Old Men. This is so, ben-, you know, and especially because I think it was like people were really excited the Coen brothers were back because they had just had a string of uh, movies that no one were really interested in, The Intolerable Cruelties and Lady Killers. And um, I, I don't know the exact timing on when they made The Man Who Wasn't There, but that was another movie that people didn't really click with at the time. Um and so, like, when No Country came out, everyone was like, oh, fucking yeah, oh, my God, the Coen brothers are the greatest. We always knew they were because they're the fucking people who made Raising Arizona, but God damn it, now here's proof. And then when they saw, you know, Burn After Reading, they got a, you know, they got bummed out because it wasn't, it wasn't the thing that they wanted from the Coen brothers at that time. And it's just, you know, just, it's, it takes just, time. Yeah, it can take time for some but movies. But, like, if you can disengage yourself from the conversation, if you can just say, I do not care what people, you know, you can you can sort of monitor the conversation to be like, oh, I guess I had to keep my eye out for that one. People are coming out of cans really buzzing about this movie, you know, Titan or whatever. And then you go, you know, Titan might be a movie that would be totally not on your radar. And then you ended up loving it because so many people were raving about it, you know. So, um yeah, I might not. I might not have ever seen Drive My Car if it hadn't been for right, all, right. All the buzz you, around you, it. you never saw that guy's previous movies. You weren't excited about Drive My Car. Um, he wasn't on your radar, and then you saw Drive My Car, and it blew your mind. And like, it's not. There's nothing wrong with like sort of keeping abreast of things and uh, that uh, and and sort of discovering things that way. But like, you just can't. You just gotta sort of enjoy the things you enjoy. Like I've realized recently, like I don't actually hate a lot of movies now that I. Now that like no one reads the things I write because I've taken them off letterbox, like 
I can just sort of say whatever I want and I don't feel pressured to have like a hot take about why this one isn't as good as the other directors. This one, I'm like, actually, I kind of just like watching movies. Um, and I, I just, you know, if, if you don't like licorice pizza, then you don't like it. Like, that's cool. There's like so many other movies that you do like. And there's oh, so I other, like it. Believe yeah. me, I do. I do. Actually, no, yeah, no, you're like right. It. I'm overstating. I'm overstating it. But like, you don't yeah. have to feel insecure about uh, about not liking Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, for example, or something like that. You can just, you know, uh, it's it. It's it's no, it, just, it, turns, it's, it turns into like, is it me? It, what's wrong? You know, I think yeah. you, you've been you've been. Oh that yeah, a few times oh yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm I get very ins- I get very insecure every time I watch a, a France not a Francois Truffaut. I get very insecure every time I watch a Jean Luc Godard movie, and I'm just like, what the fuck? Who gives a fuck? Um, and I will keep watching Jean Luc Godard movies because I want to see what other people see. So no, I get it. I'm not I'm not, I'm not trying to chastise you or say you're being ridiculous. I'm just saying oh, yeah, like. Yeah, yeah. You can sort of make steps to step out of that uh, sort of world and just uh, enjoy and or, you know, don't enjoy things at your own leisure. That's that's my main uh, recommendation to you. And you. Yeah, um, I lurk a little bit. I, I don't I don't actively engage as much as some people do on Twitter. Like I'll promote the podcast. I'll do little things here and there and I'll retweet, especially people that are doing great work, but I, yeah, I don't, I, don't, I, I, get, I definitely get a little overwhelmed by people's, we talked about that yeah, uh, before about just people's reactions and like, I should, I should feel that way because most of the majority of people do that sort of feeling for sure. And, but these are also filmmakers we've talked about the Coen brothers and Tarantino and Paul Thomas Anderson, where it, sometimes it just takes time to really fully connect with what they're trying to do. And that's okay. Like I I was actually surprised by some of the hate towards French dispatch really, but that's also another director towards French dispatch. I, a few people I know, well, Brad put thought it was the worst movie of the year. And I was like, huh? That's right. (laughs) I, I I do apologize. I think it's, Probably not very nice of me that I remember nothing about the year. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. A lot of things will, heck, there's books I've read, there's movies I've seen where I will not remember one single thing, Mm -hmm. you know, and yet I've experienced them, but for some reason they don't stick. Uh, And that, you know, it's, I think, I think not being in person kind of hinders the experience of the year end episode a little bit. Oh yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. But we have a lot uh, more fun doing it in person. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, uh, I, uh, recently stumbled upon a whole mess of, uh, illegal, uh, files of films by this, uh, Hong Kong filmmaker, Cheng Che, who was one of the most important sort of Shaw brothers, uh, directors. And I've watched like three of those movies now and they're, they're just great. And I'm like, Oh man, I can't believe I have like 25 of these movies I can watch now. I'm so excited. And you, you just, you have to follow uh, the things that make you happy and you have to uh, cut out as much that doesn't make you happy from your life as you can, because uh, life is short and uh, we're all going to die horribly. <laughs> so, so uh, I just, yeah, more I, don't, I just, I just don't want, I just don't want you to be to to be too upset about this, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that before about a couple of things in life. Yeah, yeah. no, I, 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 I get that. I get that feeling. Uh, but I'm, I'm certainly grateful that there is 
uh, a plethora of films to still discover on something like the Criterion Channel. Uh, Sharon's one of Sharon's favorite movies is Daisies, and I don't oh, see yeah. that before. Uh, and I thought that was amazing. So yeah. I mean, I, I'm you know me, I'm a sucker for when people destroy shit in rooms and devour things. <laughs> that's and that's one of the uh, double features coming up at the criteria at uh, at the music box is uh, Daisies and How High. I think is the pairing. <laughs> Oh boy. Yeah, no, that's, that's, there's definitely some of those I'm really excited about. Uh, I think how, I I think in how high they smoke John Adams finger and that's how they pass a history test. They like dig up his grave and they smoke his finger and they pass a history test. Like that movie is pretty cool. (laughs) That sounds amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And everybody's I, raving about the new jackass. So, uh, I'll, I'll, have you ever liked any of those old jackass movies? I, I like moments. I definitely, I, you know me, like once you start like doing poop and pee and vomit stuff, then I, I kind of tune out. I just don't find it funny. But like the um, jousting into the convenience store moment, that made me laugh very hard in the first one. There, yeah. There's definitely moments. There's definitely moments throughout. Uh, what's the, the roller the roller derby disco truck. <laughs> oh yeah. There's a lot of things that mm-hmm. have made me laugh, but if it gets too gross, eh, I don't know. I just, I find that stuff forced sometimes. I don't know. I just, it's all forced. It's all, yeah, no, you're right. It's all forced. There's, I no, just, way to, there's no way to naturally uh, sit on top. I of guess a, I just uh, have limitations sometimes. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. You know, um, I, I like, I like the I like the not the thing I like about the Jackass movies is I like knowing that when it hits something that is way too gnarly for me that that thing is going to be over in two and a half minutes and then I that's true that's no else. that's that's very true um, yeah, yeah. one of my all time favorite movies is the uh, Italian uh, shockumentary Mondo Cane um, and that is the same thing where some of it is just like <laughs> dumbass. Uh, just ridiculousness where it's like it's a restaurant in New York where they eat bugs and I'm like alright whatever and then some of it is like oh this is so gross I can't fucking believe I'm watching this and I like I like the safety of seeing something that I find genuinely like disgusting and upsetting knowing that it's going to end soon and that something else that has a high potential to delight me will be taking its place um, so even though like, yeah, Jackass number two is one of my all time favorite movies but uh yeah, I should uh, go back and watch them sometime, I, just I, for fun. I probably will watch that movie another seven times. I will probably never actually look at the screen when Steve-O puts the leech on his eyeball. That's <laughs> terrible, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, it was, uh, ooh. I'm really excited about that new one. I've never seen, I've never seen a Jackass movie in theaters. Oh wow! Oh no, well, that's not true. I saw Jackass number two in theaters. It was it was one of the greatest things ever. I never I didn't see Jackass number three. That's the one that really upsets me because that was the one that is actually like designed for the theatrical experience because it's in three D. Right. Um, no, there's 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 definitely a lot to look forward to. I'd say in uh, this year, and certainly we'll talk again in April for episode two hundred. I don't know what we're gonna do yet. <laughs> we'll have to talk about it and figure out something fun. Uh, it's crazy though, because I, actually it'll be episode 300 if you include bonus episodes, because it's, it's been practiced. I'm pretty sure it is been 100 bonus episodes and then 200 of the regular oh, director episodes, which what, is wild. Um, wh- what do you think the title licorice pizza means? I was going to ask you the same thing. I don't know. 
okay. have no idea. I, I you haven't see... you haven't seen this because because again you're the person like reading interviews and stuff like that. Well, I thought you would have. Seen I know it. it's I know it's a reference to a record store uh, out of that area that was called Licorice Pizza, mm-hmm. but uh, they they don't go into a record store. There's not a whole lot of vinyl. No, in any way. Uh, I think it was just a random thing that he thought sounded cool, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, there really is no reason for this movie to be called Licorice Pizza. I think it's a pretty that, bad title. I'm going to say I do agree, but the other one before it was not an improvement, and that was Soggy Bottom. Soggy Bottom? Yep. That, that, at least I could, that at least I could see both literal and metaphorical meanings to, to that title. Um because the waterbed, yeah. Well, it's it's literally a soggy bottom waterbed is what he first calls the thing, and then right, also right, right. and then also just like the idea of a kid who wets their pants being just like an <laughs> image of immaturity or whatever. So like you can see soggy bottom being the store the title for this story. Um, I think it would be bad marketing probably be because people would just think of a uh, of uh, Oh Brother Where Art Thou? But I could yeah, be that's there. what I was thinking. Yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, mm, yeah, I think it's yeah. a bad title. I think I, the only thing I can think of is if you were going to watch like a raucous kind of kids comedy in the 70s, uh, this is the early 70s. And I think what I'm thinking of is more late 70s. But like I could see a sort of Bad News Bears era kids movie being called Licorice Pizza. And it's got that like sort of hand painted poster of all the caricatures on the front, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, but they don't even eat pizza in this movie. I was like, come on, where's the pizza? I wonder if he called it licorice pizza. And then he had to decide not to include anything that could be misinterpreted as the reason it's called licorice pizza. So it's like, like, Oh, I actually can't have them eating pizza in the scene. Cause then people are going to be like, Oh, there's the licorice pizza. Or is that pizza have licorice on it? Like, I, I just don't want that distraction. So I'm just going to have no record stores and no, uh, pizza i don't know it's a bad title i had to ask the increment vice guy on twitter about the uh pizza they're eating early on in inherent vice because it has some of the weirdest fucking toppings i've ever seen on it and i'm like is there licorice on this pizza here? <laughs> i'm like am i am i reading too much into this like he what said there's some weird shit on there like marshmallows and sweet potato and kale and but there's some weird there, there's other weirder stuff that he mentioned he actually knew but i can't remember what they all were what all the ingredients really? were i've never noticed that yeah, it's 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 early on in the film when they're all getting together at the pizza place and uh Joanna Newsom's character is asking him about what he's thinking and they just you got you got you do have to pay attention but the camera's slowly uh, zooming in on what they're doing with the pizza and it's all falling apart and it it just looks like the weirdest pizza I've ever seen. Uh but yeah. <laughs> that's 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 for all you inherent vice uh obsessives out there uh, focus on that pizza the next time you watch the movie what's your uh favorite pizza scene in a movie oh man there's got to be yeah there's got to be one that really stands out that i just can't think of off the top of my head holy cow speaking of like latchkey kid energy um this is not the 70s but i think the kids ordering pizza while playing D&D in ET um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and, and the weird, like, 
I don't there's there's a really funny thing in ET where the guy who's ordering the pizza keeps saying Papa U Mao Mao. And it's like, I don't know if it's like supposed to be code word for something. <laughs> like it's, it's not explained in the movie. Um, they're just, it, it, and they're like yelling, like, don't put any fishies on it. We don't want to see any of those. Like it's, it's a weird scene. And then Elliot steps on the pizza. And I always, I always just, I think about that scene very fondly. Papa, you have to ask Steve. He's game master. Papa, he has ooh, absolute mouth. power. Steve. Thanks Steve, a lot. can I Papa. play now? Go away from the pizza first. Then I'm in. Yeah, you're in. Figure out your strategy because you're playing after Greg. And plenty of sausage and pepperonis. Everything but the little fishies. Uh, I love E.T., but I especially yeah, love course. the kids ordering the pizza. I'm not a big fan of Fast Times, but uh, Jeff Spicoli, speaking of Sean Penn, oh, sure. or- orders a pizza in class, which is something I always wanted to do when I was younger. Um, Ninja Turtles, they're always eating pizza. Yeah. Back to the Future too. They they hydrate a, a Pizza Hut oh, or God. Pizza Hut right. Pizza. I remember that. That was gross. Yeah, it was pretty gross. Cause they had like they had a pizza with just green peppers on there, and I was like, "What? <laughs> Who just orders pizza with just green peppers on it?" I was thinking it would be gross to have a rehydrated pizza. Well, that too. <laughs> I but I guess you have an increment vice sort of understanding of Back to the Future too, and you knew what was on the pizza. Yeah, I kind of do. It's kind of scary. <laughs> Back to the I've Future Two was that was my favorite when I was a kid because it has all the future stuff in it. Like I don't care about the fifties. I'm fucking eight. I want to see the flying cars. <laughs> Right, right. No, that makes sense. Yeah. Patrick, I can't thank you enough for joining me today to talk about licorice pizza. Yeah. I, ho- I hope you didn't get too stuffed uh, talking about it, but um, it's it's a pleasure hearing your thoughts again. And uh, I'm sure we'll be back, like I said, in April to do something fun. Something. Whatever it's going to. Yeah, we'll figure it out. Something. God knows what. Jim and, Patrick, <laughs> Jim and Patrick take an edible and mm-hmm. watch inherent vice. Yeah, that sounds good, too. Thanks again, Patrick. We'll talk again soon.